G'day everyone and welcome to the Australian Herpticulture Podcast. I'm your host Jason. And I'm your co-host Luke. How you going buddy? Yeah, good. Good, good. Good. Yeah. Another busy week. Another busy week. Yeah. Trying to get all this prep done. Prep done for For the expo. expo. Yeah, so. Saw your enclosures, you're pumped out. They're looking pretty wicked. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to bring them along and, you know, let everybody have a bit of a gander and stuff at them and, and see what they think. I reckon that'll yeah. be a bit of fun. Yeah, it'll be good. Yeah. So the um I like that um the one with the purple flower in it. Yeah, I hope that lasts. Hey, I just bought some tube stuff yeah. for that one. That's the one that I've done for a little golden tail gecko. So we'll see how that goes there. Okay. Yeah, no, that turned out really good. That purple flower, it's like a look. That's the first one I saw when you had all the pictures lined up. That's the one my eye went straight to. So I love that setup. I reckon anything that's got any sort of like flowers in it looks awesome at the end of the day. And it'll be, yeah, as I said, like that's all native um, native flowers and stuff like that. So it'll be yep. pretty cool to see what it looks like and hopefully it does last. I'm trying, yeah, as I said, I'm trying my hand on some tube stock from the local native nursery. I think they're pretty cheap. They're like five bucks a plant or something like that. So it's not too bad. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we'll... Uh, yeah. See how it goes. I'm really excited for this expo though, dude. I'm like chewing at the bit. I was packing up stuff this afternoon, like, you know, getting PowerPoints and uh, power leads and stuff like that all sorted. Got the business yep. cards, making up a frame for that banner and stuff. Like, yeah, it's yep. all, all coming together. I've got all, got all that stuff packed, ready to go. So I've just got to get a couple of other bits and pieces gathered up and I'll be, I'll be ready to get in the car bright and early to get there. So I'll just yeah, take you to get out there from your joint. I haven't Googled it yet, but um, I think it's about an hour and a half. It's a bit yeah, of a drive. Yeah, the same. Yeah, same yeah. here. So I'm like, I can kind of bypass Panit Hills Road now and take the, the new tunnel and go straight up onto the M2. Oh, yeah, of course. And then around yeah. that way, so. I accidentally ended up in that tunnel last time I saw Rick. I don't know how. <laughs> That's I, quick. Yeah, I don't know how I missed the turn off, but like it just shot me right in the wrong direction. So <laughs> I didn't need to yeah, go out west. I needed to go east. Yeah, well, that's right, because you stay in that lane on the left that where you would have stayed in to go your way, but now that's the lane to get into the tunnel. You've got to stay in the middle yeah. or the right-hand side to go your way now, which is confusing because I almost did it the first time I went there as well. That's and a I, big tunnel too. Like, oh. Yeah, and you can't get out of it once you're in it. Nope. <laughs> I let that. It's expensive tag as well. Like, yeah, <laughs> I'd take an extra 20 <laughs> minutes and probably another 20 bucks or something. On yeah. Trip, but, you know, make these and mistakes the tunnel's once. not that cheap either, so. No. But yeah, so looking forward to um to getting out to that expo though. Should be good. Yeah, I'm I'm excited to hopefully hopefully um uh you know hop on and and do a bit of videoing and stuff like that. Like we might try to do a bit of a live stream there if we get the time. And yeah, yeah, it should be a bit of fun. Bring out some yeah, equipment. I'm looking forward to just seeing a bunch of people too. Oh, dude, up with yeah, a couple of people. So you know, I haven't really seen any. Other keen reptile people and face to face and had a good chat, so it'd be really good to just get a chat. Yeah, I'm excited. I'm um, I'm getting some new Gillen's blood while I'm out there. Oh, nice. Yeah, so nice. Um, Kurt and I are trading a couple of male Gillen's, so just to diversify it a little further. Yep, I'm picking up a Tristis off him for a mate. Are you? Oh, cool. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Not for yourself because it. No, not for myself. No, no monitors for Shame. me at the moment. Anyway, probably, yeah. So um, I hit him up 
the other day, I think. And then I was like, oh, have you got any hatchies left? He's like, yeah, I do actually. I was like, oh, perfect. They've got a mate that's after after one. So hit him up and he said he's got one. So I said, oh, if you're heading to the expo, I'll, um, you know, save meeting up somewhere else. We can just meet up there and pick up, pick it up and make it easy. So that'll be the easiest way to pick it up rather than, you know, him go out of his way because he's going there. So Yeah, wicked. Yeah. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, yeah I'm no, um, pretty keen. I'm pretty stoked to see a whole ton of people actually. I've had a few people kind of reach out and say that they'll come say good day. I think um Nick from Nick from Wicked Wildlife, the YouTube yep. channel, I think he's gonna be hopefully coming up, so he might say good day. Um Yeah, nice. I think uh I think Coop will be hanging around too, so he might do a bit of videoing and stuff, which will be cool. Yeah, beautiful. That'll be good. Yeah. So anyway, well be good. Okay, excited. Yeah. So should be we, fun. We may as well. Yeah. May as well introduce our guest now. So um, I'll let you do the honors, Luke. So yeah. So tonight we're really excited to have Rob from Monthoon Monitors on. So hey, go, Rob. Even sounds like you got a good amount of serenity behind you there with some crickets and I think a frog or two by the sounds of it. <laughs> oh, it's actually pretty funny here. Um, so where I'm sitting, just below me, is a waterfall that's not turned on at the moment, obviously, and there's quite a big. Um, pond it's about um like probably 20 meters by 15 meters wide and um it's getting cooler up here now uh but as we start getting out of winter the white lips um all come back out again so over the dry season actually there's white lip on top of the door just staring at me right now um (laughs) (laughs) but they, they tend to all go up into the rafters and i'll see maybe 12 to 13 14 15 of them over the cooler months, and they all just sit up against yeah. the top of the roof. But the wow. problem is, when it starts to warm back up again, kicks in the mating season, they all what they do is they drop off the rafters, which are about uh, probably at least six meters high. They drop off those straight onto the deck, make a big wet splat noise. They sit there for half an hour, and then they take off. But then they all start calling, and um, <laughs> we've got louvers on the bedroom, and I pretty much just leave them open all night. You know, it's again one of the things about yeah. living up here versus Sydney. I don't have to worry about anything. I can leave all the windows open. It's beautiful, and um, yeah, I think I used one of the um, decibel monitors apps on the phone. Uh, sorry, and, and, and it was about fifty to sixty decibels just outside our bedroom door wow. in um, spring from the white lips alone. <laughs> Not mentioning yeah, all the other different species yeah. around here. So then we get um we get the sooty owls come in and um, they're pretty loud. I got one at the moment that comes in every morning about uh, four and goes off until sunrise. <laughs> 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 and you should probably look up what they sound like, but um, you'll understand why. I might have to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's an interesting sound. It's like almost this electronic clicking, and then they scream. And it sounds like someone died. Oh, oh, it? It's pretty cool. Yeah, <laughs> Make, makes curlew makes curlews look really chill. Yeah, yeah wow. Well, I complain about those. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the curlews are one thing, but no, the sooty owls. Oh my god, there's for quite a while there was no real issue. They come in here and there and, and screech and take off. But there's one little one I think that's coming at the moment that just sits out there for two hours before sunrise and yeah, it goes off its head. So. <laughs> Fun. 
Yeah, right. <clears throat> Still, even though, like it's only dark there, but I can just see it looks like a rainforest behind you, just just in the dark. So I can only imagine how nice <laughs> it actually is up there. Yeah, it's um, we are up the top of like um the range from Cairns. So um, yeah, basically where we are is sort of out the back of Coranda, um, mm-hmm. and it is full on rainforest. So um, it's as dense as it gets. There's way to wild everywhere. Um. It's really, really cool. Like it's, we're on forty, roughly forty acres. Um, yep. Only a little bit of that's cleared. Like maybe probably six, seven acres of that's cleared. Um, and yeah, the rest is just rainforest. So there's all sorts of stuff out there. Um, you know, if I went out with a torch tonight, I'd probably find like one or two scrubbies. You get small eyes out there, um, keelbacks. Um, we get plenty of green tree snakes and whatever up here as well. They sit down in the bromeliads mm. and um, hassle the frogs while the kookaburras hassle them. But <laughs> <So, laughs> we've got an amazing abundance of wildlife. Um, there's at least two yeah. different species of kingfisher. We get the paradise kingfisher that come down um, pretty much just before the beginning of the wet season. And um, I think last year we had two pairs just on the property, one pair up the back of the house and one down the section of the driveway. Um, the way our driveway works on this property, it goes up and down, meanders through two big gullies, uh, and it's basically one kilometre from the front gate up to the house. So, um, <laughs> wow. yeah, just that on an average drive in the morning or at night or whatnot, um, you'll see a bit of wildlife just in the driveway. So, paddy melons, bandy Oh, yeah, you take the, well, I've taken the bins out before and come across Scalaris, Lacey's just sitting out in front of the road. So it's um, – Herping in your own backyard. How good is that? Oh, it's it's fantastic. Um, I, I haven't even seen half the things I know that are here. Um, I still haven't actually seen a um, – Boyd's. I know they're on the block because uh, just before we bought the place, the previous owner sent me a photo of Boyd's laying eggs in the ground just up behind the sheds. Um, oh, wow. I believe one of the neighbours' cats down the other end of the property got a Boyd's because I found a pretty smelly Boyd's leg on the ground. Um, yep. And my wife saw one not too long ago just crossed the driveway down the bottom of one of the gullies, but I haven't seen one yet. So. But then we've also got, you know, whip scorpions, rainforest scorpions. I've seen, like, little memorious scorpions. Um, you just... Yeah, everything. Spiders seem to run the joint, to be honest. <laughs> there are so many just jumping spiders. You'll have breakfast in the morning sitting outside on the table and you'll have jumping spiders walking across the um, table and jumps on your arm and, yeah, it's all pretty cool. I'm just trying to catch microbats. So that was a cool wow. little observation yeah, thing that, um, yeah, I never expected. So yeah. that's just uh, Part of why I set my office up there is because it's right in the rainforest. I do get to see some pretty cool stuff. I just hear rustling noises and look out the window and there'll be like um, all different sort of skinks running around, um, different bird species. We've got rifle birds coming through at the moment that are um, hassling me. Or I look up and there's a uh, there's a big sulfur-crested uh, so- cockatoo that just sits on top of the pandanus bush and just stares <laughs> at me and like, well, this should be <laughs> Yeah. They're usually yeah. pretty noisy, aren't they? Oh, yeah. Occasionally, yeah, they just start screeching in the morning and don't stop till about 10. But there's a yep. there's a tree yep. just off the side of where I am. It's got a big hollow up the top and 
I don't know if the snakes have been going up there or monitors have been going up there and hassling them because occasionally they do seem to be using it as a nesting site. But, um, yeah, occasionally yeah. they lose the plot and start flying around the trees and something's up there annoying them. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it's um, there's always something wildlife up here. It, it never that's stops. Unreal. I'm pretty much just get garden skinks in my house. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I remember I grew up in so, Southwest Sydney, so I, I grew up exactly. With, uh, you know, before development screen, you get the odd beardy, the odd bluey coming through, um, red belly, and then yeah, just mm. stand garden skinks, and um, that was pretty much it. Oh, and the uh, marsh frogs. Yeah. You know? Yep. So now I'm up here and I get white lo- white lips and I get the little dwarf frogs. I've got the um, oh I can't remember the name of them right now. The ones that look like the little um, uh, yeah, the sort of brown um, Victoria ones. The oh, I can't remember the name right now. Perron. Yeah, they look like perrons, but they're not. They're um, yeah, the whites, whites or something like that up here. But either way, so they're out all the time, and then we also get um. Barred frogs. Um, there's a few other species that I've come across, but I haven't really, you know, tried to look it up or whatever or memorise it. But it sort of gets a bit like that. You'll be walking up and going, I haven't seen that before. I'll get back to that. <laughs> yeah. We've got, some, um, we've got some really good rain come through a couple of months ago uh, when, the, when the first cyclones were starting up. And I went down to the Mertens enclosure and um, the Mertens and the mangroves outside have got a lot of clear sheet panelling. Um, pretty much around the top, um, probably two thirds of the enclosure, just to hot box it and, and keep it warm. And um, a whole bunch of little dwarf tree frogs decide to get in between all those panels and actually start laying eggs all over the panels and in the water um, water pond. And oh, it's it was pretty cool. There's about twenty of them. I don't see them that too often, but all of a sudden, I go down one day. There's like twenty little dwarf tree frogs through everything. Like, well, you guys are pretty game sitting there with the mangroves and <laughs> yeah. the. Um, uh, Almost a free lunch. Pretty cool. <laughs> well, I would be surprised if they didn't, didn't knock a few of them off. So, yeah. Oh, that's good. So, for, from everybody here, if you haven't already picked up, Rob is absolutely monitor mad. So, anything to do with any sort of around is Rob's kind of specialty. Um, now, I, I remember coming around to your place in Southwest Sydney, you know, maybe a couple of years ago now to pick up a Kimbo off you and I picked up a Scolaris Paloensis and stuff like that. Yep. How how has it changed doing that move north? Like what have, what have you changed about your collection as far as your enclosures and oh, you're obviously doing a lot of things outside these days? Yeah, so um, it was an absolutely huge uh, learning curve. So the move alone wasn't easy. Um, all my enclosures, uh, at least my URS and a lot of the glass, were in a um, – a 20-foot container. That couldn't get delivered for two to three weeks after we arrived because of the weather. So yeah. I was pretty much looking after monitors in tubs for a couple of weeks. It's absolutely nothing to do. Wow. It was a mad rush to get the shed up and get a whole bunch of other things sorted out, get wiring sorted down that area because um, there was just a junction box. I had to pull power out of that to get everything ready. So um, that was fun to start. Um, but, yeah, now – as I was saying to you guys before, I live in Coranda and it's a really different sort of um, environment uh, when it comes to temperatures compared to, say, just down in Cairns. So down in Cairns at the moment, you're still getting days that come up to 30 um, during the wet season or summer up here. Uh, it doesn't get real cool at all. It's pretty much always at least 30 and then it gets up to 35, 36, no problems. 
um, yeah. up the top of the hill, and we're in a, in a valley up here as well, so we're quite sheltered. I think my first uh, winter up here, we got down to the low still of four degrees. Um, oh, wow. Still lovely because we get to four degrees in the morning, but then we'll still get up to like 22, 23 during the day. Um, yep. But what I found is over summer and over that um, the wet season, it's highly variable, but we don't actually get too hot. The hottest we've ever got up here, I think it was 36 so far, and hmm. uh, that was only for one or two days. And also yeah. being in the rainforest with my clearings, we don't get, you know, sun from sun up to sunset. We get maybe yeah. a couple hours. Um, so while keeping outside has been interesting, I'm actually uh, about to build two more big sheds and pull a fair few things back inside. Um, yeah. Keeping outside is great for UV and whatnot, but I can't judge temperatures properly. Um, and then also being wet season, we'll have a nice run of, say, 30, 32 degrees for two weeks. Mm. Um, everything will make, become gravid. And then when you're keeping outside, you, you can't really monitor the temps properly in the enclosure. So all of a sudden we'll have a low sitting off the coast. We'll get um, the cloud cover come in for two weeks straight and then nothing li li uh, lays viable eggs because all, uh, all my nesting boxes have um, cooled down to about 23, 24 degrees. Nothing's enjoying it. You know, you run around trying to run extension cords and whatnot, but I've got things quite spread out. Um so it's been a bit of a nightmare in that sense is trying to keep up with everything. So I'm pulling most of those species inside and uh, I'll have another play come this season. Um, I'll keep some species outside that are probably a lot more cool tolerant um, or the backups. Yeah. So it's it's not detrimental to them living outside. It's just that you can't – as setting things up to breed and to try and get at least two clutches out of things, it just doesn't work in my particular yeah. climate. Down in Cairns, probably not a problem, but up here, yeah. it's just really mild. Um, fantastic for us. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I don't, yeah. yeah, we don't have an aircon or anything like that, so it's beautiful. But yeah, you know, that's part of the learning curve. You know, you, you move up north from Sydney, you think, oh, it's always it's going to be great. It's going to be warm. Everything's just going to go off. Um, surprisingly, the Yakis do really, really well. Um, but yeah, other things yeah, like the um, the Perth Hills, for example. Um, which do come from a mild climate down in Perth, but like, well, not Perth mm. specifically, but that sort of area, they do get much hotter weather over the summer that's more consistent, whereas we really don't get that kind of weather here. So, it's, um, yeah, it's juggling everything. It's like uh, the Mitchells didn't do too well this year because I decided to pull them in um, only a couple, well, a month and a half before when they normally breed because we had another cyclone that was supposed to be coming up and hitting us. So I didn't want to leave them outside having not really experienced mm. that up here before. So I pulled them inside to an enclosure and sort of messed up, you know, their season a little bit there, which is still worth it because I didn't want a tree coming down on their enclosure. But yeah, um, exactly. yeah, it's, it's a lot of uh, playing around. So, but, so um, just, just for our listeners at home, can you kind of give us a little bit of an overview of what veranda do you keep? Now, I know that this is a little bit of a hard question because I think when you answered this, when I asked you what you're actually working with, you, you turned around and said, oh, it might be easier for me to list what I don't have as far as Australian monitors are concerned. Yeah, pretty much at the moment. So um, <laughs> so I'm not keeping any um, bush oil uh, cordolineatus at the moment, um, mainly because of humidity. Uh up here, I've sort of adjusted to I don't feel the humidity like anyone that visits Cairns does um, anymore. But 
mold grows on like random glass windows throughout the house and everywhere like that. So wow. the ambient humidity is quite high. Now, I haven't had a problem with any of the other monitors, yeah. but I don't want to really risk it with the Cordero Bush Oaks. I knew even in Sydney they are a bit sensitive to it. Um, yeah. I'll set up some specific stuff for them. I know how to get rid of humidity when it comes to breeding um, or keeping monitors it's just really about baking the enclosures which is exactly what they need but i'm just not set up for that just yet um mm. I've, I've had a lot of again with the outdoor stuff you know i've had a lot of switching around you know i put things out move things you know i'm just i'm always sort of adjusting at the moment so i haven't done any of my big beautiful setups um you know any special backgrounds or anything like that yet because i'm still really in the experimental stage after two years so that's why i'm yeah yeah Hoping come this season, I'll be solid now. I will work out. I've got a pretty pretty good idea in my mind what I need to do now. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that was yeah, that was a big part of the move. Anyway, back to what, do, um, yeah. what animals I don't keep. Um, so I don't have any Spencers at the moment and um, I've got some Panopis coming shortly. Um, nice. Otherwise, yeah, I've got, you know, Brevy Quarter, uh, sorry, it's always hard to go through this list. <laughs> so obviously, I've got, I've got Kimbo's, I've got Tristus, a uh, few localities of those. I've got Storai, a few localities of those. Scolaris, uh, at least three localities of those. Um, don't have any Pellies at the moment, unfortunately, but I'll get back into that. Um, so I'm actually trying to visualise the enclosures in my head and go through what i got. Um, got the Mitchells. Uh, Mertens, Mangroves, Sandies. Um, I believe the Sandies are still just Gouldi uh, Gouldi. They're not actually Flabbies, um, but, again, got some stuff going. Um, Kings, Ackies, of course, plenty of those, plenty of localities going to those. Um, Berichi, um Hammers, or Hammersleensis, Pilverensis. I'm going through the indoor enclosures in my head. Primordius. <laughs> um, God, I'm missing some stuff in there, aren't I? Oh, Semiramix. Sorry? Did you say Gil and I? Oh, yeah, yeah, I got them. Yep. Um, yeah, they've been a fun one to get used to breeding up here. I haven't been able to cook them the same way I used to in Sydney, so they didn't breed, even actually breed this year. Um, yeah, got one bunch of dud eggs and that was it. So I've got to uh, experiment with them again. I, they, I did really well with them down south, but up here it's juggling the temps again. Um, I think I'm about there, aren't I? Pretty much, I think. What have you got? You, <laughs> do you have, I don't think what else there is. It is it, you, you don't have Prasnus. Just you say laces? I don't have Prasnus. No, I've been holding off on that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's a big trade off to get presidents versus what I can set up more enclosure yeah, exactly. and shed wise. So the money yeah. I'm about to spend on putting in forty new enclosures is still way under what it costs to get presidents. So <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> obviously Keith Horne is not even on the books. Um, Oh, Gleba uh, Palmer, I just, yeah, I tried. I tried to get some. I chucked a bit of money at that, but that didn't quite work out for me yet. Um, 
and yeah, That'd I think that's nice species to keep. Yeah. It's it's a dream species for me to keep. Um I jump at it, but it's they're just not easy to get still at the moment. So Yeah. Because yeah, there's not we'll too many people working with them, is there? No, there's not many floating around. Um and I don't believe there's really been many breeding yet either. So uh yeah. it's a wait and see. Um I've heard a few other things going along with um, potentially with Eremias, but we'll see what happens with them. Uh, or Remus, however you want to pronounce it. Um, I'm horrible at pronouncing names. I just yeah, point at things and go, yeah, that's that. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, yeah. Oh, I just make up names. People laugh at me. I'm like, oh, I don't care. It's, you get, you get yeah, the gist it. of what I'm talking about. Um, we'll, some of the Latin we'll names. Are, Latin yeah. Right. We're not oh, the best with Latin names, either, actually. so. The, Heath, yeah, nice. Yeah, I just got the Rosenberg, so they're, they're quite nice. Um, but yeah, <laughs> that's, that's I'm, I'm pretty, pretty much sure the majority of them. Like, sorry, <laughs> that's pretty much Parentes? the majority of there. Yeah, well, that that's sort of it. I was talking to one of my mates the other day, and he's like, you know, between you and I, we've pretty much got everything you can get now. And I laughed at him yeah. and said, well, there's still a few localities to track down, but <laughs> yeah, that's right. I think, yeah, my favourites are probably the um, Pilbara rock monitors, I reckon, the Pilbarensis. Yeah, I love monitors. them. They're, um, they've got a great personality, um, really pretty chilled things, don't get very big. So it's sort of yeah. like having kings but that little bit larger otherwise personality-wise um, and the way you keep them, it's pretty much spot on. So, mm. yeah, they're fantastic. Yeah. Um, very similar to keeping um, Hammersley Ansons, really. Yeah, because they're pretty well similar, aren't they? They're just the ones that are northern and ones that are Yeah, one's northern, one's southern. southern. Yeah. yeah. So. I'm not too sure how they're, big the um, range, the separation is on the range between them, though. It's probably probably pretty big considering how big Western Australia is. <laughs> well, that's it. Well, it has to, be, has, to be, has to be enough for them to actually diverge species, as a species. But um, yeah. Overall, keeping them still like you pretty much keep them the same way. They're about the same size of you know like a large gillens, so they're a fantastic yeah. monitor to keep. Um, it's just a shame that New South Wales is still restricted. Um, yeah, and Vic. Yeah, um, yeah. It's sort of like uh, when I first started breeding the kings, I was sort of like, um, you know, why aren't more people keeping them? They're super cool little animals to keep. They're really, really interesting monitors to keep. And, and the Hammersley Ansys and Pilbarensis are much similar, uh, much the same as that. Um, yeah. You know, a bit of work with them and they, they lose their um, their timidness and they'll come out and hand feed and, yeah, brilliant little animals to watch. Wow. And obviously yep. you can set up quite nice enclosures with the rock backgrounds and whatnot with them as well. Yeah. Yeah, that always helps. But, yeah, it's good well, to see a lot, a lot of those monitors kicking about now because I remember years ago half of this stuff, you know, people that were working with them never posted pictures so you didn't even know half the people had them. So oh, I know. When I see a lot more people with them now. When I sort of started getting into the monitor side of things, um, it took me a long time to track down a lot of stuff I've got. Uh, mm. But so the way I work is everyone sort of might think that I've got a pair here, a pair there. I just breed stuff and sell it and chuck, you know, whatever. But um, what I actually do is. I have a bad tendency to keep entire clutches back. <laughs> and <laughs> I like, for me, it's not 
just about having one pair of things. It's about having, for me, it's about having trying to have minimum three pairs of most species because, yeah, at least that way I know that if something goes wrong um, with one pair, I'm covered, and that species yeah, exactly. will still be in the hobby. I'm just sort of trying to be a bit of a, um, yeah, like a, a species bank <laughs> in that yeah. sense. Yeah, I want to make sure I'm completely covered. Cool, that's, that's, that's what I was saying. I'm going to bring a bunch of stuff inside enclosures, but that outdoor enclosures will still work as um, separate backups. So animals that I'm not particularly worried about them um, breeding, I know they still do well and they're healthy outside those enclosures. Um, mm. But and they get good UV, they got good light cycles and all that sort of stuff. But they're sort of more will be out there as my not my backups and sort of just you know living life, doing their thing. While I've got other ones inside that I'm sort of more baking a bit more and trying to get the extra clutches out of. So yeah, which is a With- bit of research in its own. Like it's. It all sort of goes on my head. If I write down some of the stuff I do, it might be a bit more interesting. But I'm always, um, yeah, just sort of trying to dial things in, change things up. And, again, having a couple different um, pairs is great for that because I can change the environment for one group, leave the other group the same, and, and I can actually compare between the exact same species and same localities on how they react. So. Yeah, and I mean, if you're playing around with one, you can still keep the other pairs in the same way and try and work out with the other pair the way you want to change your setup or something. The other pair can still breed for you as well. Yeah, well, that's it. So yeah, you can you can change. Well, breeding's pretty much your cornerstone of am I doing it right or am I doing it wrong? Um, yeah, and that's part of what made me think that I need to bring a lot of stuff inside. Is if I'm only getting one clutch outside from animals that I know double, triple clutch, that means that my temps aren't up high enough or they're not mm. eating enough. Again, keeping – see, everything being kept outside isn't just in a small enclosure. They're in aviaries that are 1.8 high by 1.4 by 1.4 minimum. Um, yep. It does make it very hard to make sure the right animals are eating, all the animals are eating because when I set them up, I did them with the um, you know the, the typical Bunnings um, bark wall around the back grabbed a whole bunch of hollow logs um, out of the bush up here and put it in there. So some species that I used to see a lot of back in Sydney, I, yeah, I just know they're in there because food goes missing and I walk past and hear things <laughs> running. Um, whereas yep. you bring them back inside, yep. they sort of readjust again. Yeah, and they kind yep. of get used to your presence a bit as well. So Yeah. Yeah, well, I also get um, – how, yep. how do you go setting up those aviaries and making them toad safe as well in your area? Because that's got to be a big influencer as to how you kind of make sure your animals aren't getting little toadlets and stuff through the mesh. Yep. So basically um, the 1.8 high aviaries, they already had um, quite a high, um, I think it's about 60 centimetre, 70 centimetre um, tin base. So nothing could get in there. Uh, but when I did set them up, I set them on top of um, sleepers um, with a lot of uh, blue metal gravel. And then I used that smaller um, gauge mouse mesh across the top of the sleepers, so stapled down to the sleepers, then the then the um, aviary um, screwed into the top of the sleeper. So yep. um, that was the start. And then on the inside of the doors, I've got another 60 to 70 centimetre high um, piece of timber screwed in. And that's that, that, for a start, stops anything from being able to run straight out from the bottom of it. So it's just up to like sort of knee height, so you've got to step over to get into the aviaries. 
Uh, but yeah. that was also in case any toilets tried to crawl in underneath the door because, um, you know, there's still gaps everywhere. So that was also that other barrier. Um, down yeah. to keep the perenti and the laces and whatnot. Again, I just put um, timber all around the base and um, smaller mesh to stop things getting in because, um, yeah, the, t- the toads are a fair bit of a nightmare. And they dig. Mm-hmm. They will try and dig into the gravel and get under things and um, – it's not even that. I mean, even if I'm pulling out hollow logs from the bush and I want to put them in the aviaries, I pull the hollow logs out now and I sit them on something about two metres up or a metre and a half high and I sit them out in the sun and I leave them there for two weeks because the toads get into the logs, they burrow into the soft dirt inside the logs and you don't realise they're in there. So you could easily pull out a log, yeah. think it's all clean, bang it a few times, shuck it in the aviary, next thing you know you've got toads in there. So Yeah. Yeah, you, you have to be fairly and they climb they actually climb really well i found them up in in things about a meter high before where you would think the toad's not going to climb up like a a log on you know like a 45 sort of degree angle or whatever it's pretty smooth you think there's no way to get up in there <clears throat> and you pull it down this is not necessarily stuff putting in clothes just just stuff lying around and i pull it mm. up and i move it and all of a sudden toad pops out and you're like what how does that even get in there so, yeah, they're yeah. Bastards. they really are yeah, but, I um, definitely don't miss that about living in Queensland. I only lived up there for a short period of time. I think it was about nine months, but yeah, I think I saw enough toads to to last me a lifetime in that period. Yeah, we've got a fair few on the block here, but um, yeah, when I first moved up, I kept grabbing them, chuck them in the freezer, and try and get rid of them. But yeah, it was sort of a losing battle. I was just like, oh, whatever, I just leave it. <laughs> I just walk past them now. Yeah, I don't really bother with yeah, them. Um, too many. Yeah. yeah, kill one, another one comes up. Um, so yeah. you're pretty lucky here. We don't get sort of plague proportions of them. Um, maybe against the rainforest and the way it's all structured, they can't, they don't have a lot of areas to lay eggs. Um, yeah. Pond here at the moment is covered in sylvania weeds, so nothing's really living in that. I need to clean that out. But when I do, I'm going to be putting a, um, uh, probably have like an 80 centimeter high. Um, colorblind fence around the pond so nothing can actually get in and I might be able to put some turtles and whatnot in it as well. Um, yeah. At the moment, if I put anything in that pond, <laughs> it goes straight into the gully. That gully goes down to Queen's Creek and then bang the back out to the Barren River. So, yeah, nothing goes <laughs> in the pond right now. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you are going to keep turtles in there, what sort of turtle species are you kind of interested in to put in there? I haven't given it a lot of thought, to be honest. Um Probably just some of the standard snapping turtles, the long necks and whatnot. It's nothing particularly special. I'm not going to put like pig nose or anything in there. As I said, again, it gets quite cool up here. So I have to do a bit of yep. research. Um, some of the northern turtle species might not do too well. Like the painteds might not do too well in my pond. I'm not sure. I need to yeah. – I need to get it set up. I need to get Sylvania weed off it, and I just need to watch it a bit, probably over winter, and see what temps it's really getting to. Um, yeah. yeah. I haven't really checked, and the last thing I want to do is put turtles in that really aren't going to cope with being up here in Coranda. So as I was explaining to you blokes before that you'll get Panoptes down in Cairns and you'll get Panoptes just out west of Mareeba, which is, you know, 30 k's one way, you know, 10Ks the other. Um mm. But you won't get any panoptes up where I am in Karanda just because it's such a mild climate. We don't get mertens here, whereas you get mertens out the back of Mariba. 
you don't get Tristis here. It's pretty much um, when it comes to monitors, it's Scolaris and, and Lacey's where I am. Yeah. Apart from whatever that weird thing was I saw the other day. <laughs> I hope I'll see you again. I've seen some interesting stuff. Um, the Lacey's, for example, on my block alone, um, I think I've seen three different color variations of them. So you wow. get your typical tropical sort of like North Queensland ones that have a lot more spots on the legs and a lot more orange as they're younger. Then there's been a really high yellow one that I didn't actually see, but um, one of my mates saw when he was pulling out the driveway and so it was running across the road in front of my place. Um, and then my wife had seen another one that's probably probably a lot more like a um, a bell sort of style. Uh, had a lot larger patterning on it. She was convinced it wasn't even a lacy, but it was large. And I'm like, well, can only be a lacy. It's I've seen no evidence of panoptes up here, so it's um, yeah, pretty interesting. Pretty diverse. So, yeah. so as far as having such a large collection of baronids. What's your sort of like feeding like? Like are you still breeding a lot of bugs to feed a lot of the smaller stuff? I know you've got a bit of a special mix that you kind of blend up to to feed a lot of gear. Like do you want to just kind of run through what your feeding regime's like on a weekly basis? Um, so I'm breeding a fair few mice um, still at the moment. I like to – because a lot of things being kept outside actually drop weight pretty fast. Um, I like to keep yeah. that fat content up. So I use a lot of pinkies and whatnot um, when I need to to try and – go around and keep things growing well or keeping weight on. Um, otherwise, uh, I've been doing a fair bit of few crickets. I've stopped trying to breed woodies just because my allergies were getting to the point where I really was not enjoying going down and even doing feeding or doing anything uh, with the woodies anymore. Um, and they weren't easy to breed up here with humidity. Um, yeah. Uh, I started trying to breed crickets, but I'm just – bringing them in at the moment, it's a lot more simple because having so many animals, there's so many, so many hours in the day after my main, you know, my, my usual job and then if you're spending, you know, an hour a day going through all the um, cricket setups and pulling out the young and putting them in the incubator and cycling things around and cleaning them all out, you don't, yeah, you start to run out of a lot of time. So I've been bringing those in. Um, otherwise, uh, I've been playing with a bit of chopped up quail, um, get the chicken next so I mince them up. Uh, I've been playing a fair bit with, uh, again, trying to get my fat content up but a bit more um, bit more nutrient-rich. I've been using um, some mutton bird oil, so the capsules for those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's also a really good uh, kangaroo um, dog food. It's You can only get small tins. They're like a, a dollar each from Woolies and Coles. Um but a lot of animals actually seem to have um, a taste for it, whereas you could have uh, neck mints, for example, turkey mints, whatever, and you'll get a lot of animals that won't go for that, but they'll actually go for that rue mince mixture. So obviously a lot of vitamins, calcium and whatnot goes into that, um, mm. but it's a good mix. It's one of those mixes I use a fair bit um, for hatchies. A uh, fair few species of hatchies will go straight onto it. And yeah. so I alternate between the crickets and um, and that and that roux mix, and that seems to do quite well because the roux mix again is a bit more fatty, so you get a bit more. Um, it's a bit more calorie rich. Uh, yeah. Have you seen better growth rates feeding that kangaroo 
mints with your hatchies or? Well, I alternate it, so it's a bit hard to say, but one of the reasons yeah. I use that that brew mix as well is when you're using, um, say, neck mints, for example, um, <clears throat> I'm always worried about the chunks of bone in it. I know monitors yeah. digest them quite well, but if you get just that one errant piece that comes through that's like, you know, two and a half, three mils wide, yeah, some species will choke on it with a young. So I try yeah. and avoid that at that age. So I was about finding something else that I could use on bulk that wasn't just crickets. Um, mm. One of the things I, one of the reasons I alternate too is if you've got crickets left over in the enclosure that don't get eaten, they'll eat whatever is left over of that kangaroo mix or whatever other mix you got in there. And that mm. distracts them from deciding to have a chew on on the babies, which doesn't happen too often with monitors. I've seen it in, in geckos and whatnot. Um, but it's a way of keeping my crickets alive, keeping them fed and away from the other, um, away from your young. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I play with that. I a remember bit. losing a, I remember losing a Gillen's monitor to getting chewed on by a cricket. I just chewed through the Gillen's rib cage. Must've been while it was asleep or something. And ever since then, I've kind of been really, really wary of crickets in enclosures. And yeah. as you do with the meat mints, I kind of leave it in there. If there's a few crickets in there or something else that I'll do is I'll actually get like a chunk of carrot and yeah. just chuck it down the cool side of the enclosure or the tub or whatever I'm keeping the babies in, just so there's an option other than the lizards themselves for them to chew on. Well, that's it. They'll always go for another option. They don't want to go chewing on lizards generally, but, you know, if you get enough of them in there, <laughs> they get a bit ravenous, a bit nuts. So, yeah, yeah. it's it's a good way to protect yourself from that. Because um, I said, you know, with, with I used to enjoy feeding the, the, the woodies because a lot of animals went for the woodies, but... Um, you're just developing the allergy just made it insane. You know, it's I have to pop any histamines before I went down there, then you end up itchy, you know, itchy under your arms, itchy like sort of in your elbows, and then face would start swelling up and uh, you, you just couldn't keep doing that anymore. So it seems pretty common that allergy. Yeah, yeah. I know I've got it. <laughs> yeah, well, two out of the three people who have it, I just don't have it because I haven't worked with them. So no, in my luck I'd get it too. So I don't know if it may be more sensitive to um, other insects as well. I've become more sensitive to um, wasps, uh, wasp stings, bees, that sort of thing as well. When wow. they get me now, I swell up a lot more than I ever used to. So I don't know if it's coincidence or it's, you know, part of that whole, you know, being exposed to the cockroach frass and whatever it's triggering, triggering within your immune system is carrying on to um, – other insect-related um, interactions. It's a bit strange. Cockroaches, you know, aren't related in any way to wasps or bees or whatnot, so it's a bit in my head seems like it's a bit of a disconnect, but I can't think of any other reason why I've all of a sudden become a lot more sensitive to that sort of thing. Yeah. What's um? What made you move up to Queensland in the first place? Was that purely because you could keep more monitors up there? Oh, there was, there was a lot of reasons for that. Um, yeah. I lived in Southwest Sydney, you know, pretty much on the same block since I was born, pretty much. Um, oh wow! Yeah, and it backed onto the Hume Highway. Uh, sort of just had enough of, of living in yeah, Sydney. The way it was going, built up traffic, everything that was going on, and it's um, only worse. Yeah, I know. <laughs> there's, there's no. I could never see myself coming back down. Um, mm. But then we were going to move to our block that we had in the NT. Um, 
but with work and kids and a few other things, we sort of had to come to a compromise and yeah. uh, looked at a few properties up here and uh, this one particularly jumped out at me. Um, I mean, I hadn't even been up to Cairns since like 2020. So it was a bit of a mm. random sort of thing. We just ended up, yeah, looked at the house, looked at a few other bits and pieces, bought this property, moved up here and, yeah, away it went. But it was really just about the idea of moving to Queensland. I've got to say that a big thing was – yeah, I could keep more species. You know, it's like Victoria wasn't even on the cards. Obviously, Tassie's yeah. not on the cards. WA's not on the cards. <laughs> I'm not moving yeah. somewhere where I'm going to get more restricted uh, with what I can keep. New South Wales had just become an absolute joke. Uh, they still haven't sorted out their licensing. So you get some people, you know, have pills, can have rusties, can, you know, have hammers. There's all sorts of different species flowing around, but it's like, well, you can have them, but you can't actually move them at the moment. And, yeah. You know, if there was some sort of transparency in the way they were running things, fine. But they haven't even done that anymore. They're just they've completely mm. given up and they're just yeah, <laughs> treating it like a joke. Um so I've got to say that had a fair influence on um moving to Queensland. Yeah. Um but also, you know, the warmer weather. Um it's just a completely different environment, to be honest. It's yeah. Good. Yeah, you know? um, and access too. I mean, yeah, in Sydney, I used to love taking time off to try and drive out to the NT and whatnot. Um, now I don't have to drive out through the Blue Mountains <laughs> to even just <laughs> yeah. get out west or go down yeah. south. Um, and that was a bonus. There was nothing worse than going for a two, three-week trip out west and then having to come back through the Blue Mountains at 5 o'clock and get stuck in Sydney traffic for the next three hours just to get home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and nothing made you want to move like that. Um, yeah. So up here, yeah, we can, you know, we can be in the NT in a day if you really want them to. Pretty wow. sure everyone would kill me for sticking them in the car for that long, but you can do it, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's possible. So oh, I'd do it. Oh. Well, you, it, for the next however many years, I'm not going to be retra- re- retracing all those roads that I have so many times driving out of Sydney to go out west or go north, you know. Yeah, even if I'm driving some of those highways three, four, five, six times going out towards Isa and whatnot, it's still a lot more fresh than down south. Um, yeah, that's right. And a lot more places you can go north and south to travel back to um, Coranda. So at the moment we're looking at a trip that will take us out through um, – uh, what is it? I'm losing the the um, it's out through Croydon, which is about four hours, four and a half hours from here, and then we're looking at you know tr- basically taking um the Savannah Way over to DNT and and doing that sort of run, yeah. you know, things that I really wanted to do before, but yeah, living down south again, it's just it had too many days onto your trip, just yeah, and yeah. for a week just to get back to Sydney, so yeah, it's, yeah. There's no regrets in that sense. I'm surprised more people don't just move up north these days. It's we thought about it, <laughs> but yeah, obviously work. I didn't do it, so I yeah, work's not easy, especially with everything going on. I was quite lucky. I um I work from home now. Um, just uh, yeah, online, remote login yeah. to um the old office back in Ingleburn and. <laughs> Now I don't have to rock up to work. I don't have to go talk to my work co- colleagues. I go up in the morning and 
sweep the floor, check the animals, make coffee, yeah. walk up the back, <laughs> and uh, log in for work for the day. You know, comes around a knockoff time, walk straight <laughs> down, down, grab a beer, and I'm back down the reptiles. <laughs> so there's, there's no driving that? involved. <laughs> yeah, that's perfect. So, you save money on fuel. Well, that's it. Save money on fuel. Um, yeah, lunch is great. You got to work on um, <laughs> not or not putting on too much weight when you can go down and literally like cook up whatever the hell you feel like it. Um, yeah, <laughs> and a temptation when you're uh, dealing with some of your customers to come down and go fuck it, I'm grabbing a beer. <laughs> <laughs> They're right there. So, uh, that's good. That's good. But um, yeah. So I, I thought you... about it. But anyway, you're right, Luke. I was just going to ask, like, with all your trips out west, have they been, like, in particular herping trips or have they just been kind of like family holidays or, you know, surely you've got a few herping stories up your sleeve? Um, It's actually quite funny. I keep so many bloody monitors and I am the worst herper (laughs) you've ever met. (laughs) I can hardly ever, ever. Oh, I can almost never find anything. I think oh, I went for a three-week trip a couple of years back. I think the only thing I found was an Aki up at Devil's Marbles. It was just poking its head out from underneath one of the rocks. I'm like, oh, there's an Aki. Like, that's as far as I got. It was gone for you. got a camera out. Um, yeah. You know, I, I can find binos. Binos, I can find plenty of those. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, no, horrible. I'm hoping up here I'll be able to do it, get out once I'm all set up and everything's sorted, I'll be able to get out a fair bit more and try and do some more real actual herping. Um, but I don't have many great herping stories, to be honest. It's, it's always been with the family too. And, again, the old driving from Sydney was you'd put in seven, eight, nine-hour driving days. Um, you'd rock mm. up, unpack, have a feed, and you're sort of done, um, especially when considering yeah. most of my interests are in, you know, um, Dinoral uh, species, like a, everything's out, everything I want to find is asleep. Yeah, I go around looking for yeah. spotlight for yeah. geckos and whatnot, but it doesn't hold a lot of interest for me. It's like, um, I don't know, it's, it's like a couple of times I've just I thought, oh, maybe I can get into breeding some pythons or this or that, and I just don't find it particular interesting. And it's the same thing when I'm out there herping. I want to go find monitors. Skinks I find cool. Yeah. Um, you know, dragons are like. I don't really keep dragons though because um, just don't have a lot of luck with them. I've I've been keeping monitors and pretty much just monitors for so long now that I sort of uh, trained my brain into everything needs lots of heat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And it, I just it's some something about the way I set things up these days. I set everything up for monitors, and every time I'm dealing with skinks or with dragons, I sort of have to bring myself back and. Sort of yeah. reestablish. Like I'll walk into the enclosure and go. I walk into the shed and be like, "That's not. Oh, that is set, that is set up right. Sorry, that's it's just got dragons in it." <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? Um. How do you when you keep your monitors inside? How do you set them up? Like, why don't you go through your temperature, keep them at, and and that kind of thing? Just so anyone listening who wants to set up a monitor, yeah, kind of have a rough idea on how to do it. So, well, there's. Probably three main things for monitors. Um, that's having an extremely um, good hotspot. So, you know, 50 to 60 degrees. Um, really want it in that higher end. You can even go a bit higher because um, as long as 
your heat spot isn't a concentrated small point, which you know some halogens or whatever do, as long as you, it's, it's an area that's you know a good couple of centimeters across, the monitor will go in that really hot spot. Usually, put its belly on, lifts four legs up, and as it heats up, it'll move to the side, move to the side. And the rest of the day, it won't go under that really hot spot, but on top of that tile, because mm. um, you want it pointing at a tile or some sort of heat sink, it'll be able to regulate its temp wherever it's sitting around that light. Um, your tanks really do need to be at least 30. The whole having cool spots down to, um, you know, 25 or 28, yeah, it works for some species, but on average, yeah. a lot of the northern species, um, I find it, they find they'll find a rock that's that sort of temp, go sit underneath that rock and never really warm up properly. Um, yeah. The other one is hides. You need plenty of hides. Um, yeah. Stress is a major factor. So there's heat, there's hides to reduce stress. Um, and the other one is don't overfeed them. Once they get fat, it takes forever to get that fat off them. And, yeah, it's nice when you see your monitor and it's got a nice big fat tail or whatever, but you are slowly killing it, you know, killing yeah, it with love, right. you know, whatever people say. But it is the fact, you know, it, and it's really, really easy Um for a healthy-looking animal to drop dead in three years because it just got too much fat on it. Um, That's the other thing. Yeah. People don't realise, like, if you go look at any reptiles in the wild, you'd honestly think they were malnourished, most mm. of them, when you see them. But that's just the way they thrive, even snakes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, yeah, I've heard a lot of stories about snakes having way too much fat on them. Yeah. It's, um, yeah. But it's even hard for me. Um, I'll be going through and looking at everything and thinking, oh, I've got to get some more food in you. I'll go get some more food in you. I'll get some more food into you. And before you know it, you're looking at your males because, you know, usually they're a bit more um, aggressive feeders, you know, they're stealing everything. You look at it and go, oh, mate, I'm going to pull you out shortly because give you two years and you're going to drop off. Um, I also think when they've got too much fat on them, if you do have temp, um, like cooler temp drop-offs, I think that does have a negative effect on them as well. I think the fat absorbs too much cold and and takes it lo- takes them a little longer for it to heat back up. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've got any fat hanging off the side of you, but I know I feel it when I go into okay. cold weather. It feels like <laughs> yeah, your stomach's that bit colder than the rest of your body. I think the same thing sort of goes Most for them. Definitely. And that's, that's one of the things I'm watching with the cool weather coming through now is like I want to fatten everything up for the season, especially everything outside because they literally will not eat for the next several months. Um, yeah, that's right. But I don't want them getting cold, cold either. So I don't want that fat sitting on them. So it's fine that in between. Yeah. Um, another interesting thing from keeping stuff up here is um, parasite load. So I used to worm uh, probably once a year down in Sydney. I'm doing it probably once every two to three months up here now. Um, I'll see a big difference in some of the outdoor enclosures because the way I've tried to set things up is I try and do encourage for um, grasshoppers and stuff to go into the enclosures. Um, yeah. But then you'll get the odd monitor that will eat and eat and eat, but not actually put on weight. Sorry, I've got the odd mozzie flying around me at the moment. I'm sitting outside. Um, <laughs> and they won't put on weight. You've got to pull them back inside. And I uh, was struggling that for, uh, with that for about probably last year. But then when I started doing worming a lot more often, as soon as I see a monitor start to drop weight, even though it's eating, I pull it straight inside because what I'll tend to do is um, I don't know if a lot of people have seen it, but 
you'll get monitors or reptiles in general have different tastes. You'll have an enclosure with three animals in it. One always eats crickets. One doesn't really like to eat them, but it'll eat cockroaches. The other one, you know, won't touch like a, a neck mince or anything like that. It'll only eat, you know, insects or you get this really weird variation. Um, but some of that I've found also sort of comes down to probably, well, parasite load slash stress. So if I take some animals from outside that are starting to behave like that, uh, I give them a good worming, I start them back off on cricket so I can get them back onto the um, higher fat content like the neck mix or um, pinkies in about two and a half months. So you bring them completely back yeah. and it seems to really just be a, para- a parasite load issue. A lot of people are probably sitting there going, yeah, but I keep my stuff inside. There won't be any issues. But you're still feeding live food to a lot of these animals. So how do you yeah. know that they haven't picked something up through the other, you know, the insect breeding or through the mice or, or whatnot? So um, it would probably explain a couple of things I'd run into in cities, some animals that just are fine and just stop eating and you're trying to work out what's going on with them and you just couldn't really work it out. Even take them to the vet, you end up giving them some pretty harsh um, drugs in that Anybody. sense, and it still wouldn't work. So, oh, and UV. Sorry, I should also say UV is important. Um, I think you'll find a lot more keepers these days are quite open to giving monitors UV. I remember when I started, a lot of yeah. people would just like brush it off. Nah, monitors don't need UV, but yeah, they do. I mean, I've seen so many young come through that I can tell off the bat from my own experience and watching um, watching animals I've got from other people who didn't keep things under UV and whatnot. Um, it has a huge factor that carries on onto the offspring. Um, you probably don't see it much anymore, but probably f- eight years ago, you get ackies that used to have that, that, that only been uh, a month, two months old, and they'd already have their fingers would get twisted. They would like be really floppy, and like especially the back legs, the fingers would get mm. twisted, and they sort of get locked in together, like knotted up and stuff. That was actually a really big sign of uh, metabolic bone disease that I think must have carried on um, from from its original parents. Uh, it, they just seemed to have these weird bone issues that, yeah, was um, that seemed to come through. So I haven't seen a lot of that lately any, anymore. I think because a lot of more people yeah. are keeping into the UV and yeah, doing gut loading and whatnot as well um, helps a fair bit. So I think nutrition's. Mm been bumped back up there yeah um, but otherwise yeah so, modern is pretty straightforward keep them hot feed them well not too well yeah when, <laughs> when you when you breed your guys do you put them through like a cooling cycle or do you just let like the natural nighttime temp dictate your cooling cycle experimenting with that a bit again at the moment i think some of the issues yeah. i had with gillens this year uh, a few other species was that while it gets down to four degrees up here it's not like sydney that used to get like it, we're going to get it for maybe three weeks. I don't think some of my yeah. animals got cool enough last year. So yeah, okay. when I moved up yeah. here, a lot of those animals went really well. And as I said, when I moved, um, the container got stuck. I kept a lot of stuff in tubs in a, in a room in the house. So they did mm. get really cool and didn't get really much heat at all for you know, almost a month. A lot of those species did quite well that year. Now this year, keeping things in that shed, um, I didn't care too much about trying to cool. Um, I kept my yeah. light cycles. I did reduce them or not, but not quite like what I did in Sydney to see what would happen. Um, and that did seem to play a big part. And some of those species um, just didn't breed the same way this year. So um, I'll be cutting back my, my light cycle right back this year, uh, letting the temps do what the temps do, though. Like, so 
yeah. our night cycles still do get cool enough that it should be okay as long as I turn yeah. the lights off for long enough for everything to actually cool down and not retain its heat. So it's um, the new sheds I'm building um, are actually going to be more shelters with the enclosures lined down the walls. So the outside of the enclosures yeah. are exposed to the weather. They'll be exposed mm-hmm. to the light hitting it, so those enclosures will heat right up, but they'll also cool down really fast. There won't be actual walls themselves on these uh, new sheds. Okay. So. Yeah. be a fun thing to play with again. <laughs> yeah. But we should get the heat coming through right, and that's part of it. So, Yeah, exactly. That was one thing that I really noticed with my Gil and I this season that's just gone. This is the first season that I actually shut the lights off to for a month, I think in July, I think it was. Like I really chilled them down. And like it's one of those things you don't really think about. You go, geez, these monitors need to be hot. You know, you can reduce the hours or whatever. But like I killed everything to them. Yeah. I, I literally froze the poor little buggers. And it's because you, you got to kind of relate it to where they come from, right? Exactly. Like Alice Springs and Uluru and all the rest of it out that way. That does get freezing during winter. Like yeah, last time proper, I was up Alice, cold. I think um, Lady at the Servo said that her um, husband was a plumber and it got down to minus two that night. So he's running around trying to fix everybody's uh, water systems because hoses are popping off left, right and centre because <laughs> it did get down to freezing. Um, was that yeah. bad out yeah. Kings Canyon? Was that bad out Yalara? Um so they do come from areas that get that cold. Um, as I said, yeah. I mean, Karana, it gets down to four, and considering how many species are inland from here, yeah, they get down to two, they get down to one. There's, there's no problems with that. And I mean, anyone that's travelled out west in winter knows as soon as you hit out there in the desert, it's just cold. It doesn't matter how much sun's out during the day, it's just cold. The wind's blowing, it's just, you know, yeah. it's not a fun place to be yeah, if you're not rugged up. As soon as that sun goes down in winter, it's like yeah. the temperature just changes so quickly. Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah. So that's where I think a big part of it is, and as um, Luke was saying, it, it's that weird um, sort of thing in your head where you're like, oh, am I being a bit too nasty here to not turn this power off? Like is it, how's it really going to mm. affect it? Um, my problem is thinking about how I'm going to do the Primordius, the Barichi, the Hammers and the Pills because they're from areas where it does get cool but doesn't quite get down to four, you know, like – yeah. They might get down to 10 low teens. Um, I know the block we up in the NT um, did get down to nines and tens. Uh, they had Bridge on it. They had a Primordius on it. So it's not too bad there. But uh, it, again, it comes down to I try and run most of my sheds on individual timers on a circuit. So I run, you know, one light circuit around and one constant circuit around. The light circuit's on. Yeah. Its own heat override that will affect affect the whole circuit as well, just in case we get some sort of hot spike, like you know, heat spike, um, and also a timer. So I'm sort of also going well. I can't really lump like proper far north animals in with desert species, for example. So I'm just playing with how I'm going to move everything around at the moment and still try and balance that. Um, yeah. I don't think it's going to be detrimental to them if I did treat them the same, but again, it's experimentation still. Here, yeah. um, one of the hard parts is, as I said before, you're, you're gauging your success pretty much on your clutches. You know, if you're not getting clutches out of animals, you're doing something wrong. Um, yeah. You only get one chance of that a year. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. Yeah. So, 
you know, you mess up one year, you got to try again next year. And dialing that in, it takes time. So, yeah, it can take you two, three years if you, you know, because if, mm-hmm. if you stuff it up the second year, then you got to try and work out what what happened and then try and dial it in the next year. Well, that's it. And, you know, I had a lot of things sorted out, sorted out quite well in Sydney, and now I'm trying to readjust up here. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's. Sounds simple, you know, just trying to recreate what I did in Sydney, but it's not quite the same because I had a full insulated shed in Sydney that I was dealing with temps that would get up to 38 degrees for two weeks in Sydney, whereas I'm not quite doing that here. So, Hmm. you know, I'm trying to find a balance between it all because you're also keeping so many animals that you can't just go, oh, we'll just belt the power on for that enclosure. Well, it's like I'm already, you know, drawing two kilowatt hours through one shed alone, let alone setting more stuff up. Yeah. you got to watch your power usages as well and, and juggle it all. So, mm. it's, yeah. I've got a fair bit of solar going on. Again. Yeah. Well, that's it. So, but as I said, we're yeah. in rainforest. For, for anyone. Here. Sorry. Yeah. For, for anyone say, that wants to kind of get an idea. You go, Rob. No, I was, I was just saying rainforest up here. So, we got, you know, 30 meter trees on each side of the clearing. So, again, we don't. Sun comes in at about ten thirty, and it's gone by about three. So yeah, I'm also juggling with with that. Yeah, so that's a short day. It is. I was just I was just gonna I was just gonna say to anybody that um, wants to kind of get an idea of what your room used to look like. Um, Coop from Cooper's Reptiles or Coop's Reptiles on YouTube, brother. He's got an awesome video where he went over to your place in southwest Sydney and kind of showed off a lot of your enclosures. I have to say, when I went out there a couple of years ago, I was absolutely blown away with some of the enclosures that you had done there. Um, really nice, naturalistic sort of enclosures set up. I think I think you were actually probably the person that really solidified for me that I really needed to kind of work with a few dwarf monitor species, but in particular, I really got knuckled down with, with Gil and I, and that's why I've kind of developing a little bit of a small army now and trying to really dial them in but just to kind of relate the conversation back to where we were just kind of talking about you know how you got to kind of like figure things out and it is a bit of a puzzle like mm. i can relate to that 100 percent in the sense that after breeding gill and i i think for four seasons now I've, I've been each season i've been tweaking out with enclosure design temperatures you know just really trying to knuckle it down and yeah last year was was kind of like the big factor for me taking that that plunge and killing those temperatures to the the absolute minimum. Um, but this year I'm going to be working on a few different enclosure designs as well because I had kind of fallen back into a horizontal enclosure. But after actually going to these areas like Yalara and that and seeing the habitat where these animals actually come from and seeing all these dead mulga trees that are vertical, it, that really solidified to me that I've got to go back to vertical enclosures, hollow logs, you know, really just try to emulate the best that I can as to what that habitat actually looked like. So I'm assuming that you're doing that with all of your species as well, whether they be rock monitors that are kind of got, ver- you know, horizontal slabs or or your tree monitors and things. You, you're oh, trying to do that same sort of emulation. At the moment, everything's kept really super simple. So I'm just using, um, for things like ackies and rock monitors, I'm just using tiles stacked up on the, um, the offset sort of street stacker. Well, I do where I've got yep. um, spaces only on one side so they can – Get they can wedge in on the different levels. Um, I don't really have any backgrounds going on too much except the outdoor ones have the um, the bark. Um, I've kept it super simple because I learned, knowing I'm still in that um, testing phase, I'm still in that learning phase from moving. What I've um, 
trying to avoid is the pitfalls, pitfalls I fell into um, back in the day when I'd go, all right, I'm getting new species, I'm going to set up this mad enclosure. I'm going to have this here. I'm going to have all these rocks here, these logs here. Just, yeah, you'd really put so much into it. But then you get the species and then you realise, oh, I need to tweak a lot more. And you end up having to take half the enclosure apart just to find what works for them and then build it back up. So I decided this time um, it's all brand new off the bat. I keep everything super, super simple, you know, thin yep. substrates. So I didn't get too uh, too deep, not too much um, um, depth for, you know, uh, that would retain either cool temperatures or hot temperatures. Um, I just kept all my hides super basic. So just, you know, a couple of hollow logs, but not trying to set up looking too naturalistic. Um, but as I said, that's, been the last two years and it's kind of really getting on my nerves so i don't have the old nice <laughs> setups i used to have um so i'm already planning at the moment um for this next um bunch of enclosures i'm building they will all be done up properly again now and go back to that naturalistic um style of enclosure so i'm building so many um and they're so big that i'm trying to work on a bit of a template design um, for a basic yep. um, back wall and um, then we'll play with you know, the, the other um, rock like yeah like the other designs for ho- more hollow logs or more flat rocks yes. or things to get in between and whatnot and play with the yeah. heat but um, yeah it's about time I get back to nice looking enclosures and <laughs> build them back yeah. up like I used to yeah so it's um, that's right um one thing I want to touch on is your incubation. How, when, what are you using over water methods for incubation? Are you using vermiculite, perlite? How long roughly incubation times are and temperatures? So uh, basically, for smaller, basically, how you incubate your eggs. Well, basically, for anything so dietary, so anything where the eggs are, um, you know, about acne size eggs or smaller, yeah. Um, I just use those basic, um, over water tubs. Uh, yep. I put. Um, the water gel crystals in the base of those tubs. And I try and keep that relatively uh, dry. Um, part of the reason I like the crystals is because um, they absorb humidity in the air as well. So you don't end up with too much of a buildup in the in the tub and the eggs don't absorb too much water and swell up too much. Um, mm. So I'll use that for pretty much anything, any eggs that will fit in those tubs. Uh, for the yep. larger stuff like the sandies and the mertens, I've been using um, perlite, the perlite stuff, um, just for the bigger tubs, just because I haven't had anything for them to sit in at the moment to do um, over water, and I haven't really got to the point of um, I was going to three D print some um, egg holders so I could do over water method with the larger eggs, so I just haven't got there yet. Yeah. Um, when it comes to incubation times. Um, Pretty much, again, anything that goes in those tubs, you're looking at usually 90 days, three months. I base yeah, everything off three months. Um, yeah. And what yeah, temperature are you incubating at? Is that varying or are you kind of oh, set about for, 30 for at the species? moment? Yeah. Pretty much for all species, I'm at 30. Um, I've got some ideas in my head, some stuff I'm going to play with next year, um, particularly for um, Kimbo's and whatnot. But We'll see how that runs. I'm going to play with a few different temps. Um, I've got a, just there's a few ideas in my head because things haven't been incubating as well up here as they did in Sydney. Now, I don't yeah. know if that's because 
I have a tendency to open this incubator a fair bit more often because it's down at Reptiles. We're in Sydney. It was like up in the corner in the house that I never went into. Um, or my temps are fluctuating a bit more because it does – it's just – it's up here. It's in, it's outside pretty much under shelter. Like I don't know if it's – again, in Sydney, that house had like almost foot-thick – compressed dirt walls like it was pretty stable temp wise in the room as well as yeah. in the incubator so i don't know if that's had had um an influence on it um different fridge and everything like that so i'm playing with a few ideas we'll see how that goes um yeah but back in sydney the standard was yeah 30 degrees 90 days and you're pretty good with that um yeah don't let things swell up too much if they're absorbing too much water i find that seems to be detrimental when they go to hatch so oh, okay. if you can Pull the lid off and let them dry out a bit more in that last week. That's yeah. fine. Um, that can work. But if you're using an old fridge like I do, just make sure you seal up all the vents because I have had – in Sydney, I had a few Ackies mm-hmm. get into the vents of the fridge and they end up finding their way out and all through the room. <laughs> yeah. That would be fun. <laughs> oh, yeah, that was great. That was um, – they were everywhere. That was like a clutch of yeah. like 15 Ackies and I was finding them for like next two weeks. <laughs> did you find them all or just a couple yeah i ended up finding them all took me a Jeez, while but i found yeah. them all yeah. it was just one of those little vents in, in the fridge down the bottom and they just went straight through that and yeah they went all everywhere yeah herping in the reptile room <laughs> hey um did, did you have any kind of circumstances where you actually hatched out some monitors inside your enclosures where you missed some eggs or anything like that and you popped a few out um I haven't actually had that happen. Um, I've found eggs in enclosures that have been there for way too long that look all right and viable, um, but then when I put them in the incubator, they end up failing. So that was probably more due to when I found them. You know, I, I probably dug them up and rolled them and was a bit rough on them before I actually found them in the dirt. Um, that happened with Gillens. That happened, even happened with Kimbo's, Scalaris and whatnot. It's, it's all happened a few times, but... Um, I try and keep my enclosures in such a way that they don't really find a spot they want to lay apart from in the lay box. Um, although I suspect yeah. my Hamsley answers might have some under a tile at the moment that I'm not game enough to try and lift because I've got six in that enclosure and they tend to run through the run at the door. So I'm waiting for it to cool me out a bit. Oh, they're fast at all. Yeah. I'm waiting for the new enclosures to be ready, then I'll pull them all out and move things around and, yeah. and whatnot. Um, I think if they have laid under there, it's probably too late for them because I do let the enclosure dry out a fair bit. Um, yeah. But, yeah, overall, even keeping outside, I was very specific in using larger rocks on the base um, so they wouldn't try and lay eggs underneath the tiles and whatnot. Um, and because I do spend probably two to three probably at least two hours a day wandering around checking each enclosure, not counting me just taking off in the middle of work, walk down the reptiles and have a quick look around again while things are out. I'm always sort of <laughs> watching what looks gravid, what's doing what. As soon as something look like, looks yeah. like it's lost weight or lost any weight in the tail or whatever, I'm already straight straight away digging everything up. So Yeah. Yeah. I haven't, um, haven't had any natural hatches yet. <laughs> Yeah, I got I got pretty lucky a few years back. I think I've already talked about this in the podcast, but yeah, got pretty lucky where my really shy female Gil and I must have just hit a clutch from me, and yeah, I woke up essentially to find four individuals 
in the door of the enclosure and then another three a couple of days later. So I was pretty <laughs> lucky to get a clutch of seven perfect hatch babies out of out of the soil. So but that in that enclosure I had kind of like a good maybe 25 centimeters of dirt the whole way across the bottom of it. So there was a lot of option for them to to use the whole whole yep. enclosure as a nest box essentially and find that right sort of area and you know, at that stage, I was spraying a bit of moisture in there once a week or so, just to kind of keep the relative humidity up. So it must have just been the perfect environment for it. Yeah, and you got really lucky. You got that nice thick substrate. It does work quite well in that sense to be able to have more lay spots. You don't have to worry as much about them stressing out and not liking the lay box and whatnot. Um, beneficial in that way, but as you see, you can miss the eggs too. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's um, but. Ha- it ha- it happened in my uh, freckled monitor enclosure too. I was actually getting ready to kind of tear it apart. This is before I sold them to to Kurt Lamont. Um, and I was tearing it apart and I found five eggs and rolled them around in the dirt and, you know, chucked them in the incubator, managed to hatch a couple out. I think I got three or something out of it. But, you know, you do miss these things when you do have that sort of deep substrate. And yeah, well, actually, unfortunately, this, if you got really, really... Oh, this year was interesting was with, the, um, with the Tristus, with the Perth Hills. They... Um, I knew she was gravid. I was trying to understand yeah. why she hadn't been digging in her tub or doing what she normally does. Um, and then I found one or two eggs on the on the floor in the outdoor aviary, and I'm thinking, oh, she's she's not happy with the lace, but excuse me, she must be scattering eggs. Um, and she's just going to drop them one by one by one, like I've seen Scalaris do before. But actually, turned out that um, she'd found a nice soft. Um, uh, rotten spot in the log where she could dig into it and she'd laid her eggs in there and as she'd been moving around that log, she'd accidentally be kicking the eggs out of the log onto the ground. So, mm. yeah, because after about the first week, I'm like, I'm still finding more eggs. And I picked them up and I candled them. I'm like, it's got veins in it. It means he's got to be at least a week old. So I ended up tracking them all down. But because that where that log was, it just ended up drying out too much and none of the eggs were viable. But um, they can find some interesting spots to lay. Yeah, mm. I suppose. I mean, most of them, like yeah, Gillens, they they pretty much live in the the tree bark, so they're probably not, you know, laying their eggs too far from those trees. So, no, it'd be interesting to see if they've yeah. found like soft spots inside, like um, the hollows. Trees are, yeah, yeah well, you also get the um, the termites will come up and they'll move mud and whatnot. Um, inside the hollows as well. So I don't think there's been much actual like research out in the field um, into that sort of stuff. I mean, the average person out there, like, you know, working on the farms or whatnot, on the stations, if they come across eggs anywhere, they just assume it's a snake egg anyway and they just don't care about it. So we don't really have Mm. records of where some of these species prefer to lay. up here, I find it's... That, that could be really... Yeah. Oh, sorry. I, I was just um, going to say, the with with a few new enclosure designs that I've got on the fly at the moment for Gillen's monitors in particular, like I've got these really awesome hollow logs that are, you know, they look like a dead mulga tree, but they're really hollowed out inside. But even just saying that, that's given me the idea to kind of fill a bit of that inside of the, the hollow down the base of the tree or something with a bit of soil and a bit of a mix and just see if they happen to lay the eggs in there versus like the deep substrate on the outside of the log. Yeah. So 
I mean, thanks for that as an idea. I think I'm going to try that. <laughs> I've, I've been experimenting with something, but I, I brought it in too late in, in the breeding season. Um, I'm playing with PVC, uh, PVC pipe with um, quiapine in it, and um, I basically just put a cap on the end and cut a hole in the cap with the perspex. We do. Oh, I keep yawning. It's, I haven't been drinking my beers fast enough. Um, <laughs> and I've been putting those in the enclosures, um, a bit of a 45-degree angle, and I'm um, using some of that plastic um, sort of um, plant netting uh, rolled up and put inside the pipe so they could climb in and out of the pipe quite easily, and they've got that damp uh, sort of compressed, almost like, you know, rotten um, timber in the base of that pipe. So I could dig in there and lay eggs, but I can still sort of check on it from the bottom. So I put it in too late in the season for things to actually use it. Um, yeah. I'm sort of suspecting that Scolaris might prefer to use that, but we'll see how we go. comes down to the new enclosures now. Um, yeah, I've put it in most of the outdoor ovaries, though, because I'd also like to see what species do have a real play with using the pipe. Um mm. Scolaris up here seem to prefer logs in general for anything. Um, I find them in the fence posts um, down the front of the property. I go for my morning walk, I pop my head in, and sometimes you'll see a little Scolaris and they're like, oh, cool. <laughs> but it's a black it's a black post out in the sun, so it's that perfect spot that heats up. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I've heard other people say that Scolaris tend to be also found in like hollow fence posts and whatnot because they get hot, but they're in there nice and tight. Now I'm wondering if – Part of that also plays into their preferred nesting sites. So, again, you know, it's <laughs> too late this year. I've got to wait another year to, to, to test that theory. So, you know, and then it's still dialing oh, in temps. Gonna, so. I'm definitely going to give that a shot next year or, or, you know, roll it out by the end of winter sort of thing for at least one enclosure and put that through as an option for them just to see if it does you know, if I can get a pair to lay in something like that, then that'll be kind of a bit of a cool feat. And, you know, it could just be a once-off or it could be something that they, they actually do enjoy. Yeah. But at the end of the day, if we're giving the animals options, you know, then they're going to choose where they want to go. And the more options they have, the more comfortable they're going to be to choose the correct nesting site for the eggs. Yeah, well, that's it. I mean, an arboreal species might feel a lot safer laying their eggs off the ground. So that's yeah. part of what was coming in my head for it. Um. I've noticed that some of the tristes and scolaris have decided to set up shop in those pipes now. So if I want to feed them, they're in the perfect spot. So I just dangle the food straight in front of the pipe and they <laughs> jump straight out. Straight out. But um, Excellent. That was part of what I was going to say before about outdoor keeping um, not being as easy as well. as <clears throat> With the big temp drops, especially in the afternoon, like if I'm not down there when the sun's in the middle of the sky straight over the field, um, makes, it makes it a lot harder to feed the animals um, in the outdoor enclosures because, you know, normally in an afternoon you go down, you're enclosed inside in the house or in a shed or whatever, still warm. They're still with lights in the same way they always are. But down here, if you get the cloud cover come off, come up, you go, I'll, I'll go down and feed them at three, the cloud cover comes in, you'll chuck food through all those outdoor enclosures, but nothing will eat anything because they're cool. And then it stays there overnight, they don't eat it. So you're actually able to feed them quite the same way as well as you can inside. But um, yeah, that was a sidetrack. But I thought that'd be worth noting as well. It, one of the hard things about keeping outside is find the right time to feed some things. So. Yeah, 
Yeah. Like you, you, you're at the mercy of the weather. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> so, you know, in, in feeding stuff inside, you can feed stuff every day if you really want them to. You know, your temps are always yeah, exactly. right. But outside, you know, it's, it's like at the moment, we've just got some weather coming through now. I was supposed to feed the Parenti two days ago. I'm now looking at the weather and every day I'm like, nah, it's overcast. It's about to start sprinkling. I don't want to go down there and give it a whole bunch of food when we're supposed to have this weather for the next week. So sort of just leave it because, yeah, you don't want food just sitting in the stomach for no reason in uh, cool temps. So Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Got a big redesign happening for that anyway. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just Is designing that- some hot boxing and stuff, so. Oh, nice. Is there anyone working with Keith Hornye in Australia at all or are they kind of not on any, any species list anywhere? Yeah, they're not on any species list. Um, yeah. I think Stray Zoo, I think it maybe at one point managed to get some on in captivity. I think they bred them and they let them all go again. Ah, okay. but, uh, I don't believe anybody else has got any in captivity at the moment. Um, yeah. Part of the reason that I really want to get all my enclosures set up really well is I want to try and take a stab at trying to go for a take license. But, um, I mean, it's a big shot of dark and it'll probably never happen. But um, I think if I get no, everything I'm set up, though. absolutely perfect. Yeah, they'll want to come yeah. around and see my setups and stuff before they approve or anything like that. So I need to get absolutely, you know, bang on better than anybody zoo before I yeah. go down that route. Yeah. You know, I already try pretty hard, but there's always room for improvement until I can't, so. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's you've got to have something to work towards, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Are they probably the only monitor that's not on license in Queensland, or is there a few others as well? Well, Sparnus won't be, obviously. Um, yeah. Then there's... Dorianus, even though they've been photographed in the wild, they took Dorianus off, so you can't keep them um, in Queensland. Yeah. Uh, not that anyone's technically got them legally in Australia, I believe, although I've seen some photos of some nice stuff that looked a bit like one. Um, yeah. That was quite a while ago. Uh, not sure if they took anything else off. I think part of the way they adjusted license was if it wasn't on license currently in Queensland, then they were going to try and move it to make it more difficult for people to be able to keep them in the future. Uh, but yeah. I think we already had most of them pretty much already here, so it wasn't too yeah. much of an issue. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I can't think of any other, apart from Dorianus, Spanus, Keith Horn and I. Because Keith Horn and Dorianus are kind of from the same, like, I don't know how, Big it is, but well, they're all in the same okay. area, aren't they? Yeah, yeah. Keith Horn and I are sort of up your um, Iron Range sort of area. Um, yeah, I believe Dorianus are pretty much along that same sort of area as well, so they're pretty much spot on. Yeah, but I think one thing people sort of forget is they all they dwell on what you can't have without realizing how many different localities are out there you that can, you can still have. try and track yeah. down. You know, there's so much stuff out there. There's this, <laughs> mm. yeah, it's. Even within um, North Queensland, there's probably like four, five visually specific localities of Scalaris. You know, you've got yep. your, yeah. um, you got your um, Capes, your Lockhart's, Pelliwensis, um, what people call Coranda, but they're all over the tablelands up here. 
um, to one degree of coloration or another. Um, you've got your Birkins down sort of Townsville. Um, and then I saw a photo a few weeks back of something up out near Weeper as well that looked a bit different again, a lot more black. Um, yeah. You know, within that sort of area, there's so much variation. Um, so there's, there's a lot of things to work with out there. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. There's um, some pretty cool stuff. Like Tristus, there's so much variation. Aki's, there's a huge amount of variation. Um, there's even the stores, you know. You've got the Man Isa stores that are quite small, um, you know, probably really brevy size. You got your creators yeah. that were out sort of WA near the border. Um, I think over this way more, you've got your normal Storo Storo, which are a bit more sort of golden in colour. Then mm. somewhere up here in Queensland, you got what people are calling giant stores as well, which are quite large sort of versions of the Storo Storo. So, yeah, even huge variations just in that sort of stuff. It's there's yeah. like that everywhere, you know. I don't even scratch a surface yeah. on things like Sandy's and whatnot. Panopties, you get a fair bit of variation in panopties. It's um, pretty interesting. I mean, look at the yeah. even the um, Rosenbergs. You know, it's I just got those the WA locality ones. Then you've got the Kangaroo Island, and you sort of your standard sort of Sydney specific ones. You know, you can three three localities there in a species that's not sort of overly kept still at the moment. So, mm. so with the, with the Tristers. Which which locale are the black heads with the spots in the middle and the black tails? So you're talking more like the Alice, sort of the typical looking yeah. ones that um, yeah. have a bit more coloration like the, through the middle. Yeah, but the real dark head and the real dark tail, so they're like your Alice locale. Yeah, they're probably more like your Alice, more your centrals. Um, yeah. Over towards... You know, like they call them Perth Hills, but it's really just sort of that region there, um, southern WA region. You've got the really dark black ones. As you come more uh, east, you sort of get more your Kalgoorlie, which have a bit more red flex through all the black. Um, yeah. um, up here, you get all these different variations of um, Tristis orientalis. Like a, um, so you've got capes of those again. You've got sort of your... Mm-hmm. Townsville coastal versions of those got more yellow in them. Um, yeah, you've got your Kimberley versions, like your Kimberley locales, your centrals, uh, sort of up towards Davenport ranges again. They've got a bit more brighter orange in them. Um, there's a lot of variation through Trist, it's like a huge amount. Um, yeah, but again, it's one of those things that's not really well documented, and probably part of that is just down to um people don't really want to share the information of where where the different where localities are bound, the colorations and whatnot. And yeah, it's yep. yeah, it's sort of it's almost like um the authority sort of the way it's all structured, there's not a nice bit of free information flowing around for different localities mm-hmm. of animals, where things are from. Um yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice if we could get sort of a central there's no sort of central database on that sort of information. I know a few people have got some pretty good mm-hmm. personal record books, but again, it's yeah. about no one wants to share that sort of information. So. Yeah, that's right. The same with good herping spots. No one wants to share their good herping spots because that's what they. Well, that's what it comes down to. So, so yeah. someone goes, "Oh, that's a really nice animal. Where'd you get that from? You know, what sort sort of area is that?" I'm like, oh well, it's this region. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. So. But yeah, there's um, definitely some beautiful monitors. We're pretty lucky with how many monitors we actually have in Australia. We've got the have we got the most amount of monitors in Australia? Okay. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. We've got like 30, 30 species or something, is it? Twenty nine or thirty? Yeah, based on continent. Like on, on continent, I think um the amount of species I'd have to say. Yeah. You think I'd know off the top of my head, but after all these years, I sort of stopped doing a lot of the research. <laughs> yeah. Or at least retaining it all. I spend most of my time down there just pottering around with them, you know. It's, yeah. It's, um, I mean, that's the fun. There could even be yeah, more well, that's than that. It. Like, in, in Tristus, there could be more, like, basically, with oh, well, how, again, that, how big their range is. Well, so. again, it comes down to, um, Trying to divide species up into, um, like into subspecies and whatnot, eh? it's it's fairly complicated, and we all know that there's somebody out there that's already decided to break everything down, name it after their dogs. Um, <laughs> so, I think people that have the true experience are willing to put in the hard yards of the research and try and get the papers through to get it all divided up. They don't want to do it because. The way it's structured, as soon as they do this, actually like confirm that you know we're going to split the mm. scolaris off into two different species, it's going to be like, oh well, somebody's already put sort of their name down that you have to name it this now. If you that goes through, um, yeah. So it gets a bit vague without having to name names or whatnot, but um, yeah. Um, like there's the dwarf species of crocodile. Um, I was talking to a bloke that's done a lot of research on the dwarf species of crocodile, and um, at one of the reptile shows. That we used to do, and he was saying that you know no one wants to submit the paper because there was already the rumours that there was a dwarf species. So someone's already submitted a paper based like first before everybody else um, with the idea that there is a dwarf species without having a lot of background in the paper on it. So the people who've done yeah. the hard yards to really really show um, all the information regarding why it should be a new species and whatnot, they can submit the paper, but they won't get to name it. So it's yeah, because there's already a name out there for it. Yeah, and it's very much the same with like um, the um, the Kimbos, the um, Arnhem Kimbos. So some people call them like blue Kimberly rock monitors or whatever, but that's supposed to be a completely yeah. different species. But I don't believe that paper's ever actually been submitted um, to have them renamed for exactly the same reason again. So yeah, sort of having probably the reptile species in general across Australia properly described and properly broken down into the individual species. It's sort of being held for ransom um, the way yeah. the scientific community structured it. Um, and I don't see anything changing anytime soon. Yeah. I mean, you've got... So that's those Kimberleys, that's, is that like, are they found kind of near each other? Or is there like, are they found quite far apart? That's quite far apart. So I believe the furthest east you'll see Kimberley Rock monitors is probably at Bullo Station, which is the NT border. Mm-hmm. Um, everything else is, you know, west of there. Uh, whereas that population up near Arnhem Land, which is, you know, what, eight, nine thousand Ks away, something like that. Yeah. It's a completely separate population. Um, yeah, right. And believed to be a completely different species too. Um, yeah. There's some interesting papers actually you can find online where they don't try and break it down to a separate species, but it was just observations um, 
on the Scolaris in that region, um, the Kimbo's in the region, um, Clebo Palmer and whatnot by um, some American bloke. Oh, I can't remember the name of the paper. Um, something about like just Australian, observations on Australian monitors by two Yanks or something like that. If you type something like yeah. that in, you'll yeah. be able to find the paper. Um, but yeah. it is really quite interesting how far removed um, that species um, is from the Western population. Um, Can you remember a rough and, percentage off the top of your head? or uh, Percentage as in? DNA? Oh, no, I don't think they did DNA in that case. Ah, oh, okay, uh, yeah. And the, the paper that is supposed to be able to definitively divide them out as a, as a separate species, I don't believe it's been released. I don't know if they ever will. Yeah. One of those things where I discuss it with some other people, it's all rumours or things that, you know, I've got nothing sold on that. Um, but that's just what I hear that it was going to be called Gija or something like that. But I don't yeah. think it's ever truly been released. I haven't seen any updates on it. I think the last monitor we got redescribed was the Spanus over in WA. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, there's a lot of work that gets put into to redescribe those species. Kind of yeah, goes on. <laughs> Unkind of recognised for the most part for the general general public. They don't realise how much work actually goes into it. No, so, it's it's way above my pay grade. Yeah, but when it comes to the more technical side of things like that, like counting scales and whatnot, yeah, don't don't put me down for that. I, I'm, as I said, I, I'm a keeper. I'm not a herper. I suppose you could say. So you know, yeah. everyone says you know, herper, I'm herper or whatever. It's well, that comes down to more. Yeah, you're good at going out and finding species and identifying species and, and that sort of thing, you probably come more from the zoology side of things. Whereas yeah. I come out a completely different way as, as a keeper and I'm always trying to, yeah, look at the natural environment where they're from and trying to adapt and trying to, you know, basically just dial them in, you know, keep yeah. them in the optimum um, habitat and, uh Whatnot. So it's I, I see them as two separate things. You know, it's like having yeah yeah a zookeeper and a scientist. You know, <laughs> they don't have to be mutually exclusive. But I've only got so many hours in a day. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and I don't retain that information anymore. I really don't retain yeah. a lot of information, like you know the specifics about. You know, maybe when I was a teenager, I, I was quite good at that sort of thing. I'd go through all my books and I'd memorize it all, but. Yeah, these days I look at a skink and I just take a photo and set it while my mates go, what's this? Sometimes it's in one ear and then something old goes out the other ear. Yeah, well, so, it's, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I'm still, I think I still call children's pythons, whatever was it, the ISIS children or whatever from back in the day. I think it's got a new name now, don't they? I don't even, I'm not even up on that. Well, they just so, changed the other day completely, didn't they? Look. Oh yeah, I saw that again. Yeah, yeah Mitch posted up something yeah. about that. Yeah. So. But you see, again, I start to gloss over it. Go, oh yeah, paper. I'll retain that information. I'll have I'll have read that paper later, and it goes to the wayside, and I never look at it ever again. Yeah, I've got <laughs> halfway through it, and I haven't picked it back up. Just been too busy. But um, yeah. What were you going to say, Luke? I always I always have some interesting conversations with my herping mates uh, when we're out you know, just locally or whatever, looking around for critters. Because I think I'm potentially one of the only people that actually keep reptiles in the group. The rest of them all just go out to photograph reptiles or, or other native wildlife and that. And they still can't wrap their head around the fact that 
I keep these animals at home in boxes and try to emulate their native habitats and stuff like that. They're just like, you know, they just can't comprehend as to why you'd actually want to keep these animals. So it's kind of like a weird conflict in a sense because I still have a great interest in going out and looking for critters and and doing all that, but they come from completely different backgrounds where most of these guys have come from university and, you know, they're very book smart on animals and things. So mm. it's always always a good fun fun conversation at night time while we're looking for death adders and things. What would be good is if you get the keepers and the herpers to put the information truly together in one hit. So, you know, yeah. you have the full description of where they've been found in the wild, everything they do in the wild, whatnot, You've got the people that keep them in, in captivity that have had a much more controlled environment to see what works. So a way you can cro- cross-reference between those two points and see where things seem to line up with your observations because we know full well in natural environment you've got uh, microclimates everywhere, you know. You've got yeah. humidity will build up under a rock as the day as the sun comes up and the heat changes and that humidity under the rock changes you can't emulate that so you go try and yeah, exactly make yeah. the small environments in your enclosure for example one of the reasons i keep um a very thin substrate and keep it really dry in most situations is because then i put in a reasonably sized um humidity hide and that allows them to be able to go in there and have be able to choose the differences for temperatures, they can go on humidity high if they want to burrow. They can burrow in it. They can do all that sort of thing. But I can also keep other sections really dry because you got to imagine during the day on top of a rock while the sun's out and they're sunning themselves, you might be in an area that's normally quite humid, but that spot, um, again, microclimate, is baking. There's not going to be the same sort of humidity while they're out there sunning themselves. And they can literally run from you know there to yep. under a rock where it's humid into a log where it's a different again, it's cooler or it's not – Heat's not as intense, and there's a lot of different factors that would be good if you could um, sort of cross-reference and whatnot. But um, I digress yeah. on that. It's just the way my brain works with the whole idea of keeping things Why I do try and divide stuff up a bit um, instead of just going all out simulation, knowing that I won't be able to quite get that right. So I'd rather try and pick what I'm looking for in the simulation and design a section to emulate that area like as i said you know humidity box for example um yeah really interesting right. observation i've had lately is when the temps uh, get up the animals that are outside when they get really hot that's when they actually go find the um humidity hide or the lay box and i'll get into that and dig down to the bottom of that uh not even when they grab it just because the temps have gone up and they've decided to go to ground uh right at the bottom of the box um, that's something yeah, right. i haven't necessarily seen um in indoor enclosures before because outdoor you, you can't again you're, you're at the mercy of the environment so we do get those days it does get up to like 32 33 and i've been used to it last you know several months have only been about 30 i've taken a lot of the shade cloth off and stuff like that in areas temps rise yeah. up and they go all right we'll go on this box and we're going to burrow down as deep as we can go so at first you yes they're breeding or something but then you realize they're actually doing this to escape the heat and that starts to yeah. make you realize why People think Aki's borrow, but you know, normally in the, in the in the wild, you always find them under you know granite sheets or whatnot. They're never really like they'll dig just under the rock, but they never dig true burrows. At least not that I've ever observed or heard of. Um, but you can see they must dig down deep when the temps really get up there 
and it's baking in summer and that's again you know probably why we don't really find them that often out there in the middle of summer you always find them under the rocks in winter again it's an observation though based on environment like i don't know i just see so many variables i can't put it all into one yeah well that's the joy of keeping there too you know I, I love seeing different behaviors in animals. Like, for example, uh, just recently, I've got a, a a Gillen's enclosure that's reasonably vertically set up and they've got this mad hollow log in there and all the rest of it. And for the last few years, I've just seen them in nothing but that log. But this year, for whatever reason, and there's not, there's not even deep substrate in there. It must be five centimeters at max. So it's pretty shallow, yep. kind of like a, a red clay sand sort of substrate. I was looking in this log and I've gone, Holy shit! These all these animals have managed to escape somehow, and I was you know getting the phone in there, trying to take videos and stuff, seeing in every little crack, they were all under the soil. Now I've never had Gil and I do that to me whatsoever, unless it's a female that's nesting. Yeah, but they were all hunkered down. You know, they felt that cold weather drop or whatever, and they've gone. You know what? We're going to ground this year instead of staying in the log for whatever reason. I don't know if one started it and the other two just went. You know what? That's a good idea, and they just followed them in because they're all in the same hole. Mm. But yeah, they'd completely covered themselves in, and I, like that was just completely new to me this year. It's fantastic when you see those new observations, and then it's again you just you keeping eye on that, and see why they might have done it so the next year and next year and you start to put this picture in your head but that's what i mean if i wrote things down sometimes some of the things i've observed because i think i'm on average i say i got about 100 monitors at the moment um not really including like any young and whatnot so wow i start to see some (laughs) really really interesting things happen on a day-to-day basis but yeah you're walking down with a few beers, going through each enclosure, have a look, checking on stuff, and you sort of write it off. I'm like, I need to write this stuff down or log it somehow because it's um I see some pretty cool things they do, some pretty different interactions, even between each other. Um Yeah. I go too much. It, it sounds like you just need <laughs> it sounds like you just need to have like a little pocket notebook and a pen on you at all times. Oh, should yeah, have a GoPro on just my head. Jot down a note. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> idea. That could be organised. It'd be um, it'd be good, you know, be able to go. Oh, that was interesting. Be able to go back, pull that out, and re- have that recording as evidence of the interactions you see. So, yeah, it's even yeah. um. I noticed head bobbing. I can't remember what species. So again, see, I noticed it, I remember it, but I can't remember what species it was. But, you know, like beard dragons head bob to each other. Yep. Yep. I can't remember if it was the Ackies, the Britchie, or something was doing it the other day. They were actually head bobbing at each other, which I'd never seen them do before. Um, wow. You know, or which species are scent marking and things like that. Um, another big thing, you know, I observe more and more is – um, hostility between females more often than I've ever seen in males in a fair few species, um, especially when it comes to getting close to uh, laying eggs. You can keep trios or more of some species together without a problem until one female is about to lay and then the, lay, the females will just they'll lose the plot of each other. Um, yeah. Or things like stori. I've experimented again this year trying to keep more than a pair together even in a huge outdoor enclosure, it just doesn't go well. Um, mm. It's um, But things like that, that need to be really written down and documented, so I should be doing it. But 
I've never had luck with um, with housing more than pairs together of any species in the past. I've always found, as you said, like if I had like a trio of, of gillens or freckles or something like that together, that the female that was nesting seemed to get really hassled while she was nesting. I don't know if it was like a scent that's being thrown off or a pheromone or something like that, mm. but it's like the other females become really defensive over the nesting sites as well or, yeah. or something that's going on there. I've actually had females, I've lost females because of that. Yeah, I've seen it in you know, kings, but it's yeah. usually the female that's going to be nesting starts um, getting aggressive towards the other females. Um, recently seen it in Sandys. Um, I haven't actually seen it in my gillens, but my males are in together at the moment as well, so I see some interesting wrestling there. That's pretty cool to watch. Um, <laughs> I did have a good video of it a while ago, but I couldn't find it again. They got right into it. Like they were really just rolling around the enclosure for a good probably 10 minutes. I separate them and they both just look yep. at me like, what's the problem? Is there food coming or what? And they just wander off. Um, <laughs> they've never actually damaged each other because um, I keep a pretty close eye on them and I've never, ever seen any issues there. Um, I find you can keep Ackies in a big group, um, but they're a bit uh, – too food orientated, especially your larger males. So they'll quite often end up grabbing a female and doing a bit of damage there. So I'm splitting them all back down into trios at the moment. I was keeping six together without a problem for months upon months, out any issues. And I looked in the other day and one of the females got grabbed on the leg. Um, so I pulled her out, brought her inside. Um, I gave her a worm straight away as well, just in case she had any parasite load that caused extra stress for the healing. And she ended up bouncing back within. Three weeks, which is insane for um, monitors. They usually heal quite slow from anything. Right. Um, she bounced straight back and she's back outside in her own enclosure now with another female. So, um, But Aki's are a big one. They, they, Out of everything, I think they accidentally grab each other the most. Mangroves are an absolute pain in the butt, um, keeping them in pairs. <laughs> yep. oh, yeah, they went from – being really fun to keep to um, actually being a bit stressful to keep. <laughs> they, um, They're definitely another level. They're just super aggressive, like really. The younger younger pair I've got outside at the moment, um, I went into the – when I feed them now, I open the door, I run in and close the door before they realise I'm there. So I'm standing <laughs> in there with the food. And I've got one that bluff charges me and jumps at me constantly. So I just like foot out and I just push it away with my foot and like, you know, piss off. And um, then I'll put food down all over in different spots in the enclosure. And instead of just eating it, they just chase each other for five minutes. Instead of eating any of the food, they just get up each other and they'll chase each other around and then they'll turn around and chase like the other one will be in the chase. And they do that and stop while I'm watching them from outside. And then the one that was bluff charged, he looks at me still outside the door and just starts jumping at the door at me. Like it's just really, <laughs> really aggro animal. And it was beautiful when it was younger. It was yeah. fine. I was hand feeding and everything. And now it's just, yeah, they just – and I've seen that pretty much in almost all the mangroves when they become adults. They just get a bit – you know, you get one or two that are really cool and chilled and you get other ones that are just absolutely psycho. But then again, you know, Spencer's yeah. a bit the same. I know what Joe had – Joe Ball had that one Spencer's that was an absolute nutcase, whereas most people have pretty chilled ones. So, personality. Yeah, I, well. I've noticed that. I've noticed that with my mangrove since being 
young and never seeing it eat and you know spending all this time putting putting food in the enclosure and putting gopros in there just to make sure it eats and then all of a sudden it's gotten to the stage where you know every time he sees me even just unlock the enclosure he's pretty much jumping at the glass like waiting for whatever's coming in he doesn't <laughs> care what it is he's, he's just ravenous so he's like a proper velociraptor <laughs> a fair few species like that when they're young though it's like um like Lacey's are very much the same when they're young. You don't see them at all. Like I don't, I don't force interaction with anything. So I know a few people think that you know the best way to get used to them is to, you know, constantly inter- interact with them, force them to come out. But um, I've got no interest in approaching it that way. With all my monitors, I just let them do their thing until they're cool with me. Oh, sorry, yeah. micro back nearly hit me. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, they live up in the rafters out here and stuff, so they. I actually noticed lately I turned the um when I turn the light off in the kitchen at night. Yeah. I leave our um, big win- bay door windows open. I'll turn the kitchen light off. I'll go in the bedroom. I'll plug my phone and go, I forgot something. I'll walk back out, turn the kitchen light on. I've got like three or four micro bats swinging around the lights trying to pick up all the bugs. <laughs> Do they take back off outside again? So they're pretty cool. Um, but, yeah, what I was saying, so I don't force interaction. But so it's taken about a year and a half um, – one of the little laces that I had um, to become cool with me. And now when I'm walking to the enclosure, it jumps straight down and wanders straight up to me and it's, you know, it's no fear anymore at all with it. It's um, really quite cool. It's not aggressive. It just wants to feed and chill and, you know, it doesn't worry about me anymore. Um, and I didn't have to pick it up or do anything to get it to that point. It was just a matter of, you know, not stressing it out basically. Yeah. My kings are the same. You know, I walk in, the kings are straight up on the glass. Um, a big thing I've always noticed with monitors, though, is um, adjustment periods. If you pull them out of the enclosure and move them to a new enclosure, it takes minimum one month, usually about three months, for an animal to completely settle in a new enclosure and start getting back up to tongue feeding or hand feeding or whatnot um, point. So, you know, you've really got to like, – when you get new animals, you've got to just let them chill out, let them de-stress. They do everything really slowly. They don't do things on our timeline. You know, mm. they – they yeah. um, metabolism slow. They heal slow, <laughs> you know, and, um, yeah, mentally I think they take quite a bit of time to adjust to a new environment because think about – in the wild, they have their range, they have their specific spots, and that's where they live. Nothing changes on a day-to-day basis. So it's just patience. Yeah, exactly. I just have patience with yeah. them. So I hate when I have to move. Yeah, I, I try major. not. Yeah, I, I try not to force anything on any of my animals. I just treat them like they're wild, essentially, and then just try to introduce things like tong feeding to them as such hmm. like your your kimbo that i got off you man that must have been what two two and a half years ago now that's only just starting to come around and tongue feeding for me yep you know well again that's younger animals really have that weird in-between period where they just don't want to deal with people but as, as they become adults especially males like the kimbo is that if you're pretty chill with them they get really good like um my oldest male back in sydney if I opened the door, it used to just walk up to me and climb up my arm while I was feeding and sit on my shoulder and wander around. I never forced a single interaction. It would just do it. Like most of the time, I had to brush mm. it off because I'm doing stuff. I'm like, go away, man. I, 
<laughs> don't have time for this. Like, <laughs> I don't really want a Kimbo sitting on my shoulder while I've got the door open to the shed either. Like, you know, I just I don't trust anything. You won't just jump off and bolt. So it was a bit like, yeah, yeah. can you just stay in the enclosure, mate? But <laughs> it's um, it's a bit harder without outdoor enclosures as well. You can't risk anything in that sense. You don't want them once they hit the yeah, grass, exactly. they're gone. So yeah, you won't be catching them. No, no, I don't really want to be um mowing the lawn and. You know, six months' time and see like a Kimbo up in the tree. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to climb up it. <laughs> <sighs> Can't catch anything out here, I tell you that. But yeah. um, no, it's, uh, it's pretty cool. to When you get to that sort of interaction without having to force the animal to do it, I just find it more rewarding as well because it's complete trust. It hasn't – you haven't forced it to desensitize to you. It just has. Like it's just yeah. – Decide that you know you're cool. You're not gonna stress out. You're not gonna freak it out. You're not gonna hurt it. So yeah, it's good fun. It's good fun. It's funny. I, I always find that um, in my experience, anyway, when I buy some animals in, for example, um, I find that they they might themselves not be so trusting of me. But then if I breed animals and have them raised up in the environment from the get-go, they seem to start developing trust super, super quickly. Yeah. Whereas, you know, like, I don't know if it's just because they've just never known any different versus, you know, they have seen somewhere else, they have been kept differently and then they're brought into an environment like that, that sort of change. Like it's, it's quite bizarre. Um, I find different generations can behave a bit differently. They seem to have almost a level of domestication to them. Um, even with yeah. being less choosy about food options or temps or lay boxes, um, humidity. For example, most of the cordos that came through, they were all wild caught um, on the WA permits. And you'll always notice that the second-gen cordos will do a lot better with humidity, for example. Um, that can probably also be warranted a bit to um, – well, I don't know about socialisation with humans um, – but I just feel like they seem to just be a bit more chill overall. Um, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, I don't know. Um, but it's probably to a degree from from since they're young, um, they're probably in the same room. But as I was saying before, things don't change a lot for them. When the environment changes a lot for a monitor, it does seem to shake them up a fair bit. Um, you'll mm -hmm. get new animals in. Like if you get new animals in, one thing I always say to people is, um, you know, for the first couple of days up to the first week, you'll get your new baby Aki in and um, it'll be seem super social. It won't be real afraid of you. It'll be out all the time. It'll eat probably straight away. But what's going to happen is after that first week, it's going to find its spots in its enclosure. It's going to find where it feels safe and where it wants to sleep. And um, what it's going to do is pretty much just go into hiding for the next several months. <laughs> yeah. One month, two months, you want, you're not going to see it after that. Um, obviously, you know, there's always differences in things, but that's what I, say, what I say on average is don't worry about when it does that. Give it its time and it'll eventually start coming back out. It'll start chilling back out again. But if you keep forcing it, keep doing that sort of stuff, it's going to be pretty stressed. So for all you know, when you're getting, yeah. when you're getting those adults in, that never seem to really be cool with you. Maybe they've had 
forced interactions previously. They don't haven't had good experience with the people and they've retained that bit of twitchiness. Whereas if, when you breed things, you don't do that forced interaction. You you know, you, you feed the young and they haven't had that stress put on them of, you know, big things bad. <laughs> Giant yeah. hands, not good. Yeah. You know, so that also could be a part of it. So so I don't know, psychology yeah. of monitors, you know, how far in depth can you really get? <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're pretty smart. So Yeah. It's um there's a huge variation in personalities between species and whatnot as well. I've yeah. um one of the biggest things I think I've seen is difference between um a parenti and a lacy. Parenti's very Chill and docile. Um, yeah. They, um, they'll come up for their food, but they're not, they don't seem to be smart ass about it. Whereas the laces, they're, you can see in their eyes, the, the intelligence, what's clicking on, you know, in, in their head. They'll come up and they'll try and bluff you a bit to make you drop food or they play games in that sense. They, They'll sneak up on you even like because one of the enclosures I've got them in is like a six meter by, um, I think six meter by about nine meter. It's a really big aviary. It was here when we moved up, so they're still in there. They're not supposed to still be in there, but I haven't set up their other enclosures yet, and they're doing pretty good in there. It's a massive aviary. What can I do about it? <laughs> yeah, but, exactly. Yeah, there's you go in there and you're looking for one lacing before you know it the big ones come up behind me just snuck up on me whereas the parenti just doesn't care it sits in the corner and just does what it does and laces are a fair bit more interactive in that sense and it's just a personality thing you see it across not just you know one lacy but you can see them across all of them just you know clockwork behind the eyes i still love parentis though they're pretty cool i just i like their chilled nature they they seem a a lot more relaxed about it all they don't look yeah, like they're, they're going to try and monitors. kill me, put it that way. Beautiful monitors. No. That's why I'm still waiting to get the um, my Spencers. I've been waiting for years to get Spencers and I just haven't done it yet. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Yeah, we are very lucky here in Australia to have such a wide variety of of verandas. Yeah. There's just so many to choose from. Yeah. I mean, there's some cool and stuff every, overseas, but every side, yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, I think we've got a hell of a lot of cool stuff here to choose from, as far as monitors are concerned. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think I'd. Uh, oh, what do you reckon, you guys? Oh, yeah, so, Jesus, is that the time? Wow, we've been going for two or two hour, over two hours now, so that flew by. Yeah, that's seriously quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, you get a beer in Rob and he just starts rambling on about monitors. This man is full of intelligence as far as the, these guanas are concerned. I still do. You're going to have to take a pocketbook with you and a GoPro, I reckon, because that's <laughs> the stuff that you'd be seeing yeah. in your enclosures. I reckon that's just gold that you need to start well, recording. I've been planning on doing it for quite a while, but again, it comes down to time. Um, I said I'm about to build yeah. two new sheds, enclosures. I just got a tractor, so I'm playing with that so I can build big outdoor pits. <laughs> Um, and on 40 <laughs> acres of rainforest, I mean, my driveway's turned into a four-wheel drive track, so I've got to fix that. There's a lot of stuff day-to-day I need to do, but one of my plans at the moment is to try and get these sheds done. I want to start doing some um, 
care videos on all different species actually run people through what I'm doing in each enclosure yep. and actually break it right down because That's yeah there's idea. care sheets online and stuff but every time I, I sell something you know people are asking questions I'm like wouldn't it be better if I just just you know an hour video even of me going in depth into everything or you know two half an hour one for basic care one for breeding care on each species I keep yeah so I would like to get into that um and that way there's that bit more information out there and I can try and cover all, all that sort of thing. Um, and yeah. Not only that, but that would be so easy for you to be able to, you know, because, you know, you're going to sell 15 ackies mm. up to 30 ackies, whatever, and instead of having that conversation repetitively with everyone, you can be like, here's a link. Yeah, you know, everything. Watch this it. video. Yeah, exactly. If you have any questions at the end, yeah, you know, that's a good kind of way for you to limit your workload a little bit and hopefully answer some questions for people. Yeah. And that's yeah, a bit, I, I think, think fantastic. Um, one of the questions you wanted to ask was the um oh yep, I'm still here. Sorry. I don't know if you had that pop up in screen then. Um yeah <laughs> yeah one of the questions was do I keep the adults differently to the to the young? Um I think you you had that on the on a list of things. Yeah. And um yeah that's a big one that I you do need to get across to people is that um, when they're young, you, you don't, again, what I was saying before, don't have these over extravagant enclosures. Keep them simple to make sure that they're healthy, that they've got the heat where they need it. They're not hiding in a cold corner somewhere or their substrate's too rough and they're ingesting it and getting stuck. And because they get, they're cold, they can't pass it. And there's a lot of things, like, little things like that, where it would be helpful if I did a video and really got to depth about. Yeah, the basics yeah. of that, even just that sort of thing, you know. When you get your first young monitors, yeah. how to keep them healthy properly, not, you know, just whatever. And it's hard to get that across sometimes, just, you know, messaging as well, whereas I can run people through my actual individual setups. So. And then I can always it. go back and watch it as well if they're not sure or if they've forgotten something, they can go back and watch the video. Yeah, well, that's it's it. Always yeah. there. So, and it's a, that's, so that's one of the plans. Um I thought it might also be helpful if I did, uh, considering we used to have Iron Bark and, you know, we brought a lot of products in and, um, you know, I've seen a lot of products come in from the ground up. I've pulled a lot of stuff apart. I thought I might maybe do some um, product reviews here and there as well. Um, I was standard stuff out there, but a bit more in depth of just, you know, here's a light, it shines a light, it does the UV, but actually pull it apart and give people a breakdown um, the internals of it say you know you see this copper here this is not real thick so you can have your issues here or expect within five years these wires are going to degrade because of the way this is built and the wire gauge they've used and that sort of stuff you know considering my my other background is like you know military cable harnesses and things like that is my day job and comms and whatnot i see a lot of that engineering side of things so yeah <laughs> i have a lot of little plans and a lot of little things i want to do in the works so i just got to get to it so yeah it's all about time. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. I know I'd be watching those videos. Yeah, same. It's, um, although it wouldn't be a bad idea considering a lot of our stuff, you know, it all comes really from China at one degree or another. So um, I've dealt with a lot of suppliers. I can break things down, really show people what to expect and what to do. Mm. So, And, uh, yeah. So. And you never know. Maybe I'll, when oh, I get back awesome. out west, I'll be able to do some herping videos if I ever find anything. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that'd be awesome. Yeah. So if if anybody did want to get in contact with you, Rob, where's the best places to to find you? 
Um, so we've still got the uh, Monsoon Monitors uh, Facebook page and uh, yep. we're on Instagram as well as Monsoon Monitors. So people just shoot me a message off that. Um, we've got a website in the works, um, but don't expect that to get done anytime in the near future because I haven't really even worked out exactly how I'm structuring it with videos and things like that. But we'll get there. So um, I'd say by the end of the year that should be ready. Um, I've got a lot to do. This um this dry season, getting ready for next um breeding season coming up first. <laughs> priorities, yeah. Yeah. animals are the priority. So yeah, exactly. Uh, do all these other cool things. At the end of the day, I'll spend way too much time down there just going through everything. So, oh, that's awesome. All right, guys. Well, you've definitely heard it here first. This has been an awesome monitor chat. Yep. Uh, I'm going to say, Rob, thank you so much for jumping on and being our second guest on here. We really appreciate yeah, thanks, having Apes. you on. No worries. I, I dare say we will we will get you back on as well once you've done a few of your upgrades and stuff to talk about what you've done there and you know what your kind of plans are or maybe even at the end of the breeding season or something like that we'll get you back on just to see how you went with some of your new enclosure designs and bits and pieces yeah so pretty good it'd be cool to kind of have a i've got a, I've got yeah, a fair few cool plans i'm always excited about next season to come so it's it's the winter lull where you sort of got to readjust to um nothing's eating anymore you you're not as busy as you yeah. were with the monitors <laughs> you wander around everything's asleep you're like what am I doing in my life? Everything's asleep. I should just go to bed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Follow the monitors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that'd be the life. Mm. That'd be the life. All right, guys. So, yeah, I will give another quick plug out for the Penrith Reptile Expo. Really looking forward to that this coming weekend. So if you guys are coming along to that expo, make sure to come and say good day to Jason and myself. We'll be over at the Australian Herpetoculture booth. Um, yeah, come and grab a business card, grab some stickers, have a bit of fun. Uh, Chase, is there anything else that you want to touch on, mate? Not that I can think of off the top of my head. So. This has been an awesome yeah, chat. I'm, oh, I've definitely got I'm thinking mind. monitors now. In my head, I'm like, oh, those Kimbos look pretty good. Good, so. good. Yeah, no, that's good. That that seed's been planted then. That's awesome. Yeah. But anyway. You need some monitors in your life. We'll just have to have to ask the missus for you. Yeah, exactly. Make sure you get permission. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I don't think she listens past a certain point, so, you know, could be free game. No, we'll, just, we'll just sneak it in here. Yeah. Jason's getting monitored yep. one time or another. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> At one point. Oh, cool. Well, I'll, uh, I'll wrap it up yep. and close us out here, guys. Sounds so, good. So, uh, guys, we'd like to say a big thanks to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. It's awesome to be over on this uh, NPR network. Um, if you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at moreliapythonradio.com and email them at info at moreliapythonradio.com. As far as contacting us in our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherpticulture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon and Teespring under Beaches Scaly Beasts. We hope you hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpetoculture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night, guys. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>